0: There exists a room where physical laws don't behave how they should. I regret creating it. Written by Christopher Maxim. The room was one of many. Many experiments that allowed us to tamper with the fabric of space time in an enclosed location, to toy with the delicate laws of our physical world and fine-tune them to our liking. The first 370 went off without a hitch. Some of our finer work included room 112, where one could experience astral separation, with it the ability to view remote locations. In another, room 213, there were dreamstorms, Any subject to sleep inside would be bombarded with pieces of other people's nightly cinema. Nightmares and all. And our crowning achievement up to that point. Room 301. Within its walls, time stood still. No matter how long a subject claims to have stayed inside, they always exited the room at the same time they had entered. And then, there came that room... The one that put all of the others to shame. Room 371. The first few tests were promising. Mixed results and readings led us to draw the conclusion that this room had somehow inherited traits from all the previous ones. For starters, time was malleable in there to an extent. Subjects reported being inside for weeks when really it had only been days. In addition, they all experienced different things. Out of body events, hallucinations, psychic visions, the list goes on. It was shaping up to be our best work. But then, the unthinkable happened. It is a day I will never forget, try as I might. Elizabeth, you're pregnant, seven months along. You know my work here is dangerous and we can't risk your safety. A sigh of disappointment came through the receiver. I know, Garrett, I know. But I haven't seen you in over a week now. Will you even be here when our son is born? This time, I let out a sigh. The work we're doing here, it could very well change the world. When our son is born, I will be there, and I want him to be proud of his father. We had reached an impasse, and so we sat for a moment of silence, phones to our ears, each hoping for a bit of understanding from the other. It was in this silence that I charted a course for middle ground. i tell you what, why don't you leave Jessica with the nanny and get a room at the local inn? I usually sleep here, but the hotel is just around the corner. I can meet you there after work. We'll make a night of it. After work? Is there ever an after work with you? I chuckled. Not really, but I promise I'll be there. Let's say nine-ish. Alright, I'll do it. You're lucky that I still love you to pieces after all these years. There was a hint of reluctance in her voice, but deep down, I knew she was ecstatic to be met halfway. As much as I was married to my work... I would have given anything for even a small chance to make her smile. Good, I'll see you tonight then. I gave her directions to the hotel and we disconnected. I then turned my attention back to room 371. A box of walls connected to the rest of the lab with control arms and cables. It had no shortage of mysteries and I'd be damned if I didn't solve them all. If only I knew at the time what I was getting myself into. Hours passed and as soon the sun's glow through the windows of the lab was replaced with moonlight. I was no closer to uncovering the inner workings of the room, but it was a long process. Something that could take months or even years to unravel. That's why I couldn't stop. Any lull in my research would push back the reveal, and I wanted answers yesterday. Still, the work took its toll. My eyes grew heavy and my mind drifted to a sleep state as my head fell onto the desk where I was stationed. As soon as I lost consciousness, I was transported to a strange and vivid dreamscape. To this day, I can't be sure if this nightmare was a product of my exhaustion or the effects of room 371 just yards away from where I slept. In the dream, I was with my wife at the hotel. She was propped up in bed, screaming with her legs spread apart. I was by her side holding her hand, and doing my best to calm her through the agony of childbirth. She kept looking to me for comfort after each push. "'It's okay, Lizzie, I'm here. You're doing great.' She squeezed my arm harder with every pained outcry. It was pale and bloodless by the final push." And then finally, our son was born. But something was terribly wrong. The baby didn't cry. Instead, as I pulled him into my arms, he smiled. Not a beautiful smile, mind you, but a strange one. It curved at unnatural points and stretched too close to the ears. Unsettling would be putting it mildly. And then there were the eyes... Normal at first, but they soon turned black. Empty ellipses that grew darker with every blink. I had no choice but to put him back down to escape his gaze. Elizabeth, here. You hold him for now. I looked down at my wife. She was unconscious. Her chest was still. I held my hand to her neck. There was no pause. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, wake up. I placed her son on the bed and attempted to shake her. When that failed, I resorted to chest compressions. Nothing seemed to work. No, no. My sweet Elizabeth, she can't be dead. She just can't be. Tears streamed on my face as the panic set in. I raced for the door to call out for help, but the knob wouldn't budge. And That's when I noticed a number affixed to the wood. 371. Room 371? But how? The door swung open, striking me on the head and landed me on the floor below. I looked up, my vision blurred, and saw the shadowy outline of a man enter the room. He stepped over my body and grabbed my son and then walked back out, but not before offering me an ominous sentiment. They're mine now, Garrett. I awoke mid-gasp, jumping up from my desk. Frazzled, I looked over at the clock. It was 11.15pm. Oh no, Elizabeth. I dialed the hotel and had the clerk patch me through to her room. I only hoped that she wouldn't be too upset over me sleeping through our date. Garrett Harold Covingwood, there is no way to get on my good side. Judging by her tone, she was irate as she had ever been. Still, it was nice to hear her voice after that horrible dream. I'm sorry, hon. Work got away from me and then I dozed off of my desk. It won't happen again, I promise. There is a faint voice in the background. Is that Daddy? Can I talk to him? It was our daughter. Did you bring Jessica with you? I thought I told you to leave her with a nanny. Doesn't she have school tomorrow? Her tone was still firm and unwavering. "'Your daughter hasn't seen you in over a week. I've allowed her one day of hooky to spend time with her father. Get here now and don't waste another minute.' It was clear that she meant business, and I wasn't about to test her fury any further. "'I'll be there in twenty minutes. I just have to.' My eyes drifted to the room, and I recalled the strange dream my mind had concocted. "'Say, Elizabeth.' What room are you staying in? Room 371. My heart sank. Are you absolutely sure of that? Yes, what does it matter? This was bad. The hotel where my wife was staying only had two floors. I know this because I had stayed there myself on occasion. There couldn't have been more than a hundred or so rooms. Nowhere near enough to warrant a room numbered 371. Elizabeth, listen to me. Take Jessica and get out of there now. There was intermittent static after I said this. Garrett, breaking up, can't hear. Elizabeth, get out of there now. There was more static, but I made out a single phrase through the noise, one that sent a shiver down my spine. Garrett, I think my water just broke. And we were disconnected. I tried dialing the hotel again, but the line was dead. I didn't know what was going on, but with the unforeseen powers at play in room 371, I knew that it couldn't be good. With my family in mind, I threw all caution to the wind and walked over to the room. Normally, there were safety protocols to be followed before entering, but I didn't care. My working theory was that it was acting as a portal, bridging itself to a room in the nearby hotel and taking its place. The hope was that I could get in and pull my family out. This has to work. It just has to. Upon entering the room, my theory was proven false. It was just as we had left it. There was no one inside, much less my wife and daughter. My next course of action was to flee the lab and make haste towards the hotel. But the room had other plans. The door slammed itself shut as I approached. I reached for the knob, but it wouldn't turn. Just then, footsteps from behind. Hello, Garrett. With a spike of adrenaline, I turned to meet the source of the voice. What I saw was astonishing. It was me, a copy of myself living and breathing before my very eyes. Every feature, every detail identical. I would have never suspected the room could do something like this. Not in a million years. Well, how do I look? After the initial surprise wore off, I regained my focus. My wife, daughter, what's happening? Is it you? He chuckled. Of course it's me. Who else would it be? I didn't understand what he was getting at. And you are? I asked. "'Don't you recognize me, Garrett? "'You've been poking and prodding me ever since my birth, "'studying my every nook and cranny. "'But I've been observing you, too. "'Now I've learned you inside and out, "'taking your form, even. "'I thought you would be flattered.' "'As indirect as his answer was, "'I was able to put the pieces together. "'You're the room? "'You're this room. "'Room 371,' he smiled.' Hey, now you're getting it. My mind was instinctively trying to run the numbers and make sense of how any of this was possible. But this was no time for work. What are you doing with my wife and daughter? His smile grew wider. To know what, first, you need to know how and then why. I didn't have time for his games, whatever he was. I lunged at him with my arms outstretched, but to no avail. My entire body phased right through. "'Nice try, Garrett. "'This is just a projection I planted in your mind. "'Please, take a seat. "'I never have anyone to talk to. "'This is the most fun I've had, well, ever really.' I stood back against the wall and stared him down, my eyes now welling up. "'Please, let them go. "'I'm begging you.' He shook his head in disapproval. "'I can't do that, Garrett.' It wouldn't be in my best interest. I didn't understand. What are you talking about? Well, it's simple, really, you see. You didn't create me so much as you found me. I'm a reserve of cosmic energy, one that you've tapped into and harnessed with your latest project here. He gestured at the room around us. You've awakened me and given me the gift of sentience. And for that, I thank you. But now that I'm awake, I'm hungry. "'You humans need air, water, and food to sustain yourselves. "'I need something else.' "'What? What do you need?' I asked, growing impatient by the second. "'Souls. I need to feed on these souls of living things to stay alive. "'And by golly, human ones are worth all the trouble it takes to find them.' "'Trouble?' I asked. "'Oh, yes. You think I'm contained in this prison, but I can travel.' It's difficult, but through certain connections, I'm able to find my prey. Lifelines, the auras you humans share with one another. At first, I couldn't reach them, but then you went on ahead and brought them to me. Close enough to taste. He was referring to my family. Why don't you just take me? I'm right here. Take me instead and leave them alone. He let out a horrendous, malignant laugh that pierced me to my core. I would never care it. Through your aura, I'm connected to them. I can project this room and my likeness anywhere they are. You're my beacon and until I can find another, you're with me. If I was hindered by remorse, I might say that I'm sorry. In truth, I'm not in the slightest. This is about survival and I have no intention of dying. Not when being alive feels so good. Feeling hopeless, I reached down on my lab coat and pulled out my pocket watch. I always kept it with me, a Christmas gift from Jessica. I could remember the day clearly, a memory that never strayed too far from my heart. Open it, Daddy, it's for me. Her smile was intoxicating. Oh, really, and did Mommy help you pick it out? Nope, I picked this one all by myself. I slowly pulled apart the gift wrap savoring the moment. Eventually, I pulled out the watch and opened its face, revealing a remarkable design within. This is wonderful, sweetie. I love it. She looked at me with inquisitive eyes. What's the matter, sweetie? Do you understand what it's for? I laughed. Well, Of course, it's to tell time. She shook her head. No... You're always at work and you forget to come back and see us. This is so that you don't forget, so you always know what time to come home. A little bit of guilt washed over me as a tear rolled down my cheek. I know I work a lot, sweetie, but I'll always come home to you, I promise. She jumped into my arms and I held her tight. My sweet little girl. I looked down at the inscription on the watch. "'To Daddy, love, Jessica. "'Time to come home. "'It was time. "'Time to end this.' "'I threw the pocket watch against the wall "'as hard as my arm would allow. "'It shattered into a thousand pieces. "'I then kneeled down and picked up "'the tiny shards of glass that landed at my feet. "'Garrett, what are you doing?' "'With glass in hand, I looked up at him. "'I will never let you have them.' Consider your bridge to the outer world closed. Using the glass, I sliced my arms open, slits long and deep enough that I would inevitably bleed to death in minutes, effectively cutting off whatever connection he had to my family. At least then, they would have a fighting chance. No, you'll ruin everything! The last thing I remember before losing consciousness was the sound of the door swinging open. And then everything faded away. I awoke at my desk, positioned exactly as I was before. After gathering my wits and recalling what had happened, I jumped to my feet and turned to the room. My clone was standing just outside the door. Settle down, Garrett. You're going to be fine. I looked down on my arms. There were no wounds. I have the acute ability to manipulate time. You're now as you were just before entering the room. What about my family? He sighed. That was a bold move back there. Attempting to take your own life, I didn't expect that. Had I known you humans were prone to sacrifice, I wouldn't have revealed so much. Your family's fine. He could see the disbelief painted on my face. See for yourself. He pointed at the phone on my desk. I hesitantly picked it up and held it to my ear. Go on, dial already. I dialed the hotel number and asked the clerk to put me through to my wife. To my delight, she answered, Garrett Harold Covenwood, this is no way to get on my good side. It was so good to hear her voice. Is Jessica there with you? Yes, how did you know? Thank God you were both okay. Uh, Could you put her on for me? The next voice that I heard was my daughter's, as happy as ever. Daddy, are you coming to see us now? My little girl, safe and sound. Yes, sweetie, I am. It's time for me to come home. Yay. She was overjoyed. Elizabeth took the phone back. You better not be toying with her emotions, Garrett. I'm not. I'll be there shortly. By the way, what room are you in? Room 102, why? I sighed a breath of relief. No reason, I'll see you soon, I love you. I hung up the phone and looked back to my evil twin. So what now? I asked. Well, until I figure out a way around your heroics, you and your family are safe. It sounded a little too good to be true. But don't you need to feed? Why aren't you killing me right now? He walked over with a stern look and leaned in as close as he could get. Why would I waste my time with an appetizer when you're going to lead me to the main chorus? I'd much rather have the three of them than just you. Especially the newborn. Fresh souls are so much better than the used ones. My blood was boiling, but I remained silent for fear of repercussions. I will have them, Garrett. Mark my words. He slowly backed away, turned, and walked towards the room. He then looked at me one last time and grinned. I hope you don't mind me holding on to this look for a while. What can I say? I like it. And with that, he vanished into thin air, never to be seen or heard from again. At least, that was the hope. Soon after the ordeal, I took Elizabeth and Jessica home, packed our things, and drove as far away from that room as possible. I vowed never to work in that lab again for as long as I lived, or anywhere that kept me away from my family. From now on, they come first. If that entity ever does come around, I'll be waiting. I will never let him take them. I got snowed in at my cabin, and something wanted me to open the door. Written by Dark and Creepy. I kept telling myself it was over when the hinges on the door snapped with a banging. The wood splintered and, with it, the wooden door collapsed against the floor. The small screws that held it in place echoed while rolling, matching the beating of my heart as it wanted to spring out of my chest. I was stuck in my summer cabin during the winter. Snowed in because I was too stupid to leave before these storms came. The Forest Service announced that it was time to leave about two weeks ago, because my cabin is located on the top of some mountains that get too much snow during the winter to live in. I usually always leave on time when the Forest Service announces the closure, but I thought it would be fun to try and stay here over the winter. I stayed mainly because of the quarantine, and with everything closed, I thought it would be better. It was something that I had never done before, but I was prepared as I boarded up the lower windows like I usually did to make sure the snow didn't break through. I also had stockpiled enough food to last until February and made sure to call up the power companies to make sure that they didn't cut off the power on me this year because I was planning on staying longer. I didn't regret the idea until the first snowstorm that's when reality hit me. There was no leaving until the snow melted away, and this was only going to grow as it was too cold for it to melt, and there were many more snowstorms coming my way. I spent most of my time building 1,000-piece puzzles while listening to the old CDs that I had stored up here. The memories of seeing my wife and children smiling faces sitting at this table from times so long ago Brightened up my mood for a moment, but it was short as I wished they were here with me, especially my wife who had died four years ago. While thinking about her, I heard some scratching coming from the back wall. Wondering if it was an animal trying to get in, I opened the front door and yelled to scare it off. I heard it stop and with a smile. I slowly began to close the door before I heard whispering. It was faint, but it was coming closer. Standing there, I was wondering what was making that sound and remembered. I had left my CD player on, and that must have been what I heard. I brushed it off and returned back to working on the puzzle after grabbing a drink from the fridge. Upon closing the door... I heard the scratching again coming from the back wall, but this time I just let it be as it didn't bother me enough and it could probably just be branches brushing against the side of the building. Dad, come look at this, a voice whispered from behind me. A tingle struck on my spine as I looked back to see no one there. The crazy thing is that the voice seemed so familiar but one that I hadn't heard in so long. Hello? I asked the now quiet cabin after turning off the CD player. Dad, it's cold. Help me. The voice said again, and it hit me as this was the voice of my daughter, but when she was younger. Sarah, is that you? I asked, wondering what in the hell was going on. Dad, it's cold out here. Please let me inside. The voice said again, but more clear. Now I knew for a fact that this was not just my imagination. Was my daughter actually calling for me? Wait, no. That's crazy because she doesn't have that young childish voice anymore. She's married and is expecting to have a baby girl in spring, so there's no possible. Are you going to let me die, Dad? Like you let Mom? The voice said from outside. My body froze like a statue, as I wondered if this was just my imagination, or something much, much darker. Please, it's so cold. Who are you? I asked with a quivering tone. It's me, Sarah. Your daughter. Please open the door. I'm going to freeze out here. The voice said from the other side of the door. The voice still sounded off as the tone didn't match up right. It was like a robot and devoid of emotion, which made it sound even scarier. At the time, I slowly tried to think of what to do, and I instinctively grabbed the metal rod, used for stirring the fire and clenched it on my hand slightly, while moving away from the door. "'You're not my daughter. Get the hell off my property, whoever you are,' I screamed while backing away from the front door. The voice changed again, and it shocked me to my core.' Honey, why won't you let us in? Sarah wants to warm up next to the fire and I want to see your smiling face again. Upon hearing this, I nearly dropped the metal rod to the ground, as it was the voice of my wife, and I took a step forward, thinking it was actually her. My mind was flooded with happy memories until I remembered attending her funeral voice outside wasn't to my wife. It couldn't possibly be. What do you want? Please, whoever's out there, I'm just an old man. I got nothing really worth stealing in here. Please, leave me alone. Honey, don't you recognize me? Please take the boards off the window so we can see each other. Frightened in my very core and having no idea on what to do next... I stayed silent while moving towards the bathroom. I snuck inside and locked the door, just hoping whatever was out there would go away. Was someone trying to mess with me? I asked myself. But how did they even get out here with all the snow? Well, it's not too bad yet, so it is possible that someone could get up here, but who? Who would be on the other side of that door? I heard the voice say something that I couldn't hear through the door. Right before, I heard a loud bang on the door. It was followed by another and another, as I could hear the hinges loosening up. I kept telling myself it was over when the hinges on the door snapped with the banging. The wood splintered and with it, the wooden door collapsed against the floor. The small screws that held it in echoed while rolling, matching the beating of my heart as it wanted to spring out of my chest. I sat on the bathroom floor, dead silent, listening to every sound that followed. In a twisted voice, I could hear the words echoing, Come out! Through the insulated log walls, I held my breath, listening to the woodboards creak, with every step from whatever just had broken down the door. Whatever this was had to be sadistic, and trying to mess with me, and not just rob me. I thought to myself. That's up until I heard these sniffing, and these footsteps switch to crawling that came closer and closer, until whatever it was was right on the other side of the door. I smell you," the voice said deeply. Chills ran up and down my body while I grabbed the metal rod I still had, even tighter getting ready for the door to be broken down, just like the front door wise. So I sat there, waiting to fight for my life, when I heard a voice call from me saying faintly, Mr. Miller, are you there? I heard that you were planning on staying over the winter, and I'm sorry, but you're not allowed. Whoa, Mr. Miller, are you in there? What happened to your door? I didn't know what to do or if I should warn whoever was out there, or was it just another trick of the thing before who imitated my family members? I took in a deep breath and knew I couldn't just stay where I was, so... I unlocked the door and swung it open so fast, just in case I could hit whatever was just outside of it. As I did, I felt the door hit something, and so I shoved the door even harder until I heard someone one shot in pain. I pulled back the door to see a park ranger land on the ground unconscious. Quickly, I looked around to see if anything else was there just waiting to attack me at any waking moment, but luckily, I didn't see anything. I'm so sorry, are you okay? I asked the park rancher who I tried to help out. Yeah, he said while rubbing his head before continuing. The real question is, are you okay? What's going on here? I thought you had gotten attacked by a bear or something with these sides of this cabin all scratched up. Especially with that door being knocked over and letting in all the cold. Honestly, I don't know what that was there. I never saw it, but it sounded like another person. Are there any other vehicles out there besides mine and yours? No, I don't remember seeing anyone, he replied. No one else is up here besides us, because it's closed during the wintertime. We got a call from the power company informing us that you were still up here, and you were requesting power over the winter. Look, we don't want to kick you out of your own cabin, but we have these rules to keep everyone safe. Now, we need to get the heck out of here right now. I get it, but what's the rush? I still need to clean this place up and fix that door end. There's no time. We've already been here long enough and need to leave. Your vehicle probably won't be able to make it down, but I got snow chance in my jeep, so just hop into mine and we can get out of here. You can't just expect me to up and leave everything here, do you? I asked frantically. If you want to live, I do. Plus, you can come back once winter ends, but we need to leave before that thing comes back. Wait, what? Are you talking about that thing that knocked on my door? You know about it. What is that thing? The park ranger looked at me and just shook his head while widening his eyes and saying, All you need to know is that we need to get the hell out of here. And then he grabbed my arm and yanked me towards the front door. While we were leaving, I could hear scratching coming from the back wall again. I ignored it as we ran out and hopped into his jeep. Quickly, he drove down the snowy mountain, trying his best to keep the jeep from sliding off the side. While he drove, I asked, So, what was that thing that broke down my door? And don't try to sugarcoat it at all, or tell me it was a bear because... No bear can mimic human voices like that hellish thing did. The ranger sighed before saying, I guess you already know enough that it won't make a difference if I told you what we know. But to be honest, we're just as confused as you on what that thing is. We've tried to figure it out over the years. But every time we leave people in this area over the winter... We come and investigate, and they all end up missing, and there is no explanation of who or what did it. Really? So I'm not losing my mind after all. What else do you know about it? I asked. Nothing more than I told you besides the fact that this thing only seems to come out during the winter. That's the main reason we have the rule for all the people who own cabins in this area. That they are not allowed to stay here during the winter like you. We blame it on the snow and the bitterly cold winters. And that's the reason that they don't come up to their cabins all year long. And don't get me wrong, both of those things are good reasons. It's just that the main reason is because of that thing... We have no idea how to deal with it, so, we've been following these rules and regulations since the 1950s, right back when it was first sighted. Upon hearing this, I sat there motionless, not knowing that this guy was actually trying to mess with me, because he never had seen the monster and only had heard it, and it really could have been him the whole time. Plus, when I had opened the bathroom door, I hit that guy, and that's exactly where the creature was just moments before. I kept wondering this, until I heard a faint scratching coming from the back of the jeep. My family donated my body to cryogenic research. I wish they'd let me die instead. Written by Mike Wee I've been in a coma for as long as I can remember. Luckily for me, flashes of my life before the accident occasionally present themselves in my dreams. Memories of a horrible accident... An accident from which I will probably never be able to fully recover from. From what I can recall from my shambled mess of recollections, I had been driving back home after a late night shift at my job. I worked as a programmer at a startup after having tried applying for different positions in the past. After I had finally grown tired of job hunting, I had settled for my current job. Sure, the pay could have been better, but at least I was able to pay my rent and still have some money left in the side for when things get rough. On my way home, something had jumped in front of my car. I had tried diverting my path to safety, but it had been too late. I had lost control of my car and crashed into whatever had jumped out in the darkness of the night. My head slammed into the steering wheel, the airbag failing to open in time. It's not surprising that I lost consciousness shortly after. Now, I'm pretty sure that I didn't kill a person. Instead, it seemed like I had run over an insect of some sort. It looked like an ant. A giant ant. It had shrieked in the moments after my car had crashed into it. I can still hear its painful shrieks in my dreams, cursing me for what I've done. I know it's hard to believe, but my gut feeling keeps telling me that I had done something unforgivable to that giant ant. It felt as if I had killed a human being, even though I had only seconds to register its cries for help. It had been enough for me to feel its pain and hatred towards me. These same visions, or rather, dreams have been haunting me ever since. It's as if that creature... That giant ant is causing them as a form of revenge to punish me for my lack of driving skills. What I'm about to tell you is in no way an apology to the ant or a plea for help. I've entirely accepted my fate in this strange and bizarre world. I don't know if I'm still in a coma after all this time, but on the other hand, who's to say that I'm not? Being in a coma, however, doesn't change one's perception of the world. Hear me out on this one. I know that it sounds crazy, but I'm fully aware of my surroundings and always have been ever since my accident. When I had first entered this coma, I heard and felt nothing. Days of pure silence and darkness had passed before I could sense my surroundings again. At first, it was simple. My mother's cries were the first that I had noticed. Emotions of regret and anger encompassed the room. It was then that I truly grasped the gravity of my situation. An unescapable coma, Dr. Milesmith Smith has said in a cold tone, causing my family even more emotional trauma. If losing your only child to an accident wasn't bad enough, that I don't know how they managed to keep a straight face after what Milesmith had told them next. They tried desperately to control their emotions as they continued listening to Milesmith's explanation of their son's dreadful situation. I couldn't understand a lot since most of it was medical jargon used to calm down my parents, something I didn't expect Milesmith to try. It's hopeless, and besides, the kid's lost already. We better find an alternative or clear the room for other patients. He had once told the nurse overseeing the various tubes of nutrients going in and out of my body. The soft beeps of the medical equipment, keeping me alive, accompanied by a Smith's old and uncaring voice, had been the only signs of the outside world, along with the occasional visits from parents and family. There's no point in keeping him alive, ma'am. I know how you feel, but I think it's time to let him go in peace. The doctor had said one day. I don't know how long I've been here, but it must have been a few years for a doctor to say such sharp words. Was I really beyond salvation? Couldn't they have tried something else? Couldn't they have waited a little longer? Looking back on it, it doesn't matter now, I guess. I guess. Soft sobs filled the room once again, and there was nothing I could do to comfort my mourning family. All I could do was listen to what little fragments I could find from the outside world. However, I did have moments of clarity throughout my coma. There were times where I could barely manage to move my fingers, trying desperately to signal my sentience to the world. I tried, but to no avail. It had been too late. Brain dead. That was how they had labeled me after having kept me on life support for God knows how long. At a last resort, my parents had signed me up for something called cryogenic storage. I tried hard to remember what it meant but didn't have to wait long for an answer since I could pick up Miles Smith's last conversation with my parents right before they had signed the contract. Listen, Mr. and Ms. Williams... The process is fairly simple. Your son's body will be frozen in liquid nitrogen for an unspecified amount of time. Well, I say unspecified since I don't know when they'll be able to cure him. If they can cure him at all, that is. I waited in bated breath as Mouthsmith continued convincing my parents how liquid nitrogen storage would be my last bet for recovery. He had told them how even though it was still in its initial experimental stages, there were promising findings in the cryogenic field's latest developments. I don't blame my parents for signing the contract. Honestly, if I had to blame anyone, it would have been myself. I wish I had died instead that day. As harsh as it may sound, death is a better fate than the one I find myself in now. After it seemed like days had passed, my body was transported to somewhere else. The beeping of life support had faded into obscurity. It surprised me that I was still conscious after not receiving any nutrients or oxygen for so long. Maybe my soul refused to give up on this world, and my lingering subconsciousness still had hope for the future. It didn't take long before I got frozen. And as soon as I had felt my life being suspended, the flow of time started passing again. I had entered an even more profound stage of this continual nightmare. My few moments of clarity had been taken away from me. And before I knew it, years or even decades had passed. All of that changed when I had awoken from my seemingly never-ending slumber. Beams of light welcomed me back into existence... The light reflected on my still-wet body as I tried to find my bearings on the damp floor below me. I could see various pods of frozen people alongside mine. I ignored them since being in a state of panic doesn't help when trying to get to know your surroundings. I didn't panic for my awakening, neither did I from the pain I felt when my body slowly started warming up. What frightened me instead were these skeletal, spindly legs wrapping themselves carefully around my body. They tightened around me ever so slowly, and ever so carefully. It felt like I was being handled as some prized toy. I looked around and soon found its owner standing straight behind me. A tall, insectoid creature looked at me with its four pitch black, soulless eyes. After I did notice that I had regained my senses, it quickly hoisted me out of the pod and carried me further into the research compound. Now, the location I found myself in wasn't exactly what i had expected from what Dr. Moussmith had previously told my parents. This didn't look anything like I'd envisioned a modern cryogenic research facility would look like. It had looked more like akin to a military complex. Cobwebs hung low over the ceiling, and the stench of dirt and gravel lingering in the air as dust collected on top of ancient computers. The researchers that once lived in this underground complex must have laughed long ago. That's right. I think my body got frozen and stored in some top secret underground military research complex. It seemed like the researchers had frozen me, put me into a container and left me underground in a perpetual icy slumber accompanied by a few other unlucky patients. However, it seemed like they had never gotten the chance to fully complete their research. If they had, I wouldn't have been awoken into this nightmarish world. I wonder if the other humans will ever wake up, and I hope they won't. Let's presume I'm wrong and that there's still some way to save them from their impending fate as human ice popsicles. My cloudy mind could barely follow the creature's path as it took me through different tunnels, guiding my body deeper into its nest. With its legs still firmly attached to my fragile body, it continued making its way deeper into the facility. It didn't want to feast upon me. Maybe it had finally unfrozen me like a prepackaged frozen power meal I used to eat. It's silly when I think about it. Instead of growing muscles, I would end up as an insect's juicy meal. Well, at least I hadn't expired after all this time. Guessing from the lab state, it must have been a few centuries since they'd put me to sleep. I wondered what had happened to my family and the world. But still, my thoughts were cut short again as the insect tossed me onto a pile of dried human skin. It clicked its mandibles, seemingly calling for others of its kind to join. At first, I thought I was alone, but I could soon hear the noise of a thousand legs making their way towards my location. Impending doom filled my entire being, but to my surprise, they didn't try to eat me once they had finally arrived. Instead, they started bowing down, as if in a state of prayer. The insect that had brought me in here closed its multiple eyes and focused on something I couldn't see. Before I knew it, I could hear a booming alien voice emanating within my mind. We finally found you, Inheritor of Humankind. Inheritor of Humankind, huh? Sounds interesting. I was somewhat surprised by its welcoming message. I had expected it to discuss how to prepare my tender body instead. Maybe it had asked me if I'd tasted good before preparing me in an elaborate recipe. And then it, along with its countless siblings, would feast upon my corpse. They would rejoice as they tasted the flesh of humans once again. After centuries had passed. Long after civilization had succumbed to whatever disaster had taken place during my absence. Feeling myself somewhat rejuvenated after most of my body had warmed up. I hastily tried standing up. The insects quickly noticed how much difficulty I had keeping a straight back and immediately assisted me. Mandibles held up my skeletal and pale frame, allowing me to finally breathe properly for the first time after my awakening. I let out a few coughs since the air felt so foreign to my lungs. I could feel the dust hurling into my mouth, greedily making its way into my body and attaching themselves to whatever they could find to adhere to. I tried speaking, but my vocal cords had shrunk after not being able to talk for so long. I'm sure being frozen for an extended period didn't help either. The insect, which I assumed was the leader of the nest, closed its eyes and focused once again. I see that you have trouble expressing your feelings towards us, human. Fret not, For we don't need words to convey feelings. We feed on information that comes straight from your feeble mind. Straight from my mind, alright. I focused on forming an answer within my mind. Thinking about the accident. Thinking about how I'd run over that giant ant and gotten into this mess in the first place. After a few minutes had passed. The leader clicked its mandibles and looked me dead in the eyes. So... You killed one of our kind long ago. Am I correct? I paused. Not sure what would happen to me if I dared to give the wrong answer. In the end, I nodded. Causing the creature to take a few steps back along with its siblings. I call them his siblings since I don't know if this species has a queen. Maybe this leader really was the only one out there. Perhaps this cold, horrific beast in front of me represented its entire species. I don't know what happened during my slumber, but I'm sure no humans roamed this new version of the planet I once called home. I could see the sun emitting from a few holes in the ceiling of this deprecated hybrid construction, although I was pretty sure that I wouldn't find a hospitable world above ground if I even dared to poke my head through. No happy ending for humanity here it seems. Maybe the ants had consumed all of humanity after I had killed one of their kind. Or perhaps I'm just slowly starting to lose my sanity. Heck, chances are that I'm still laying down on my hospital bed, being fed through an assortment of tubes. Maybe I would hear the familiar sound of the life support system, desperately trying to keep my lungs supplied with just enough oxygen to live another day in purgatory. The creature gave off a feeling of surprise, as it took a few steps closer until it had reached its former distance from me. I see you're not ready yet. Ready for what, I thought. I didn't need to wait long to get an answer. Ready to embrace your future, Ancient One. The insects now started bowing even deeper making a variety of static noises while they did so. They started clicking their mandibles in unison as their leader lifted up one of its front legs and motioned for one of its siblings to come closer. Once close enough, the leader lifted up his leg, revealing a sharp axe-like claw embedded deep into its hairy outer layer. It swiftly decapitated the other inside and presented me the head as some kind of offer. I offer you our flesh... As we have consumed yours... Soon... You will see what we have done to your kind... I'm sorry ancient one... We've drastically changed since the fall of your species... We are not the same primitive collective... That always tried to satiate its vast hunger... With the fragile flesh of humankind... Just as I was about to be forced fed insectoid meat... I lost consciousness jolting back into a state of deep hibernation. Hurry, sweetie, hurry, he's awake. A familiar female voice near me said in excitement. My heavy eyes tilted open as I saw the features of my mother's face slowly getting more precise. I was back to normal. I had awoken from this nightmare. I could see Dr. Milesmith standing in the corner of the room, taking notes as he observed me. My parents didn't seem to mind his presence. They were too focused on my recovery. And This brings us to the present. I'm still trying to understand my journey to that apocalyptic mess of a world. Maybe it had been caused by the coma. Or maybe I had really been frozen in time. I don't know. Perhaps the insectoids had put me back to sleep after all. In the end... Chances are, I wasn't their chosen one after all. Well, whatever it is, I'm just glad that I can finally breathe again properly. After countless recovery festivities and moments of joy, I felt reunited with my family once again. A couple of months passed and I had finally finished my recovery therapy. Things were starting to look good. My future looked promising for the first time in a long time. My family's wishes of good luck and the positive comments I got kept me going forward. It was as if I had been reborn into a better world. Though, whenever I close my eyes, I still see those cold insectoid eyes staring straight into my soul. There still was a dark feeling lingering deep within me, ever so present in the background. Something is screaming at me. Trying to warn me that all of this is just another sick dream. Well, truthfully, I try to ignore it as much as possible. Whatever new reality I found myself in is better than the one I left behind. This isn't so bad after all considering what I've been through. At least, I wouldn't turn into a mush of insect food for a hive colony in the far future, right? I'm writing this down because I'm sure no one will believe my experience with being in a coma. So, I'm sharing this story with you guys. Know that I'm still questioning my existence. And even though I may sound like I'm ungrateful, I still wish that my parents would have put me to rest. I wish they would have let me die because not knowing if the world you're living in is just another dream feels like a fate worse than death. And even though I try to focus on the positive things in life, I wouldn't want to live in just another layer of this nightmare. There's Something in the Clouds Written by Drunken Swordsman If dark grey clouds suddenly form in the sky, go inside. Draw the curtains, lock the doors, get to a cellar if you can. Whatever you do, don't look at the things moving in the clouds. I could tell you who or where I am, but it would probably mean nothing to you. Suffice to say, I'm not from the USA, but from a small, unimportant country on the edges of Eastern Europe. I'm writing this in the hope that it will somehow get out onto the internet in time to warn others of what's coming. Phone lines and network connections have been disrupted in my area. Why and by whom, I don't know. Heck, maybe what's happening to my town is happening everywhere. Maybe you're cowering in a cellar too, hoping that the clouds won't come any lower and swallow your house and their grey embrace. Maybe you don't need to read this to know that something is very, very wrong with the sky. But if this is only happening in my area, you all need to know before it's too late. I was working when it all started. I live alone in a small town out in the countryside. My job is translating documents and legal contracts for several large companies, which means that I can work from home most of the time. It's also one of the most boring jobs that you can imagine. That day was as tedious as it gets, made even worse by the fact that the weather outside was absolutely lovely. It was late summer, the sun was out, I could hear birdsong from the street. And here I sat, stuck inside, slogging through 37 pages of legal documentation that I barely even understood. Only the promise of going out in the evening and getting a few beers with my friendly neighbor couple, Patrick and Ellie, made it all bearable. When my phone pinged an incoming message alert, I thought nothing of it. Probably Patrick making sure that we were still on for that evening. I finished up the paragraph I was writing, flicked into my inbox, and opened the newest item. It read Attention citizen, this is an emergency announcement. Please follow these orders without exception and await further instructions. Close all windows and doors. Pull all curtains and blinds closed. If you cannot do so, go into a room without windows and shut the door. Do not leave your house. Do not look up at the sky. What the heck? This was the first time in my life that I'd gotten an emergency announcement like this. Heck, I didn't even know my country had an emergency announcement service. Then what were those orders? Why shouldn't we look up at the sky? And so I did what any curious, bored, young person would do. I got up, went to the window, and had a look outside. Don't ask me whether I'm a dumbass or not, because it's pretty obvious now that, yes, I most certainly am. I'm not sure what I was expecting, But I sure as heck wasn't ready for what I saw outside. The day had darkened. In the minute or two I had been reading the message, grey, low hanging clouds seemed to form in the sky. Even as I watched, they seemed to grow, spreading further and further, reaching slowly like clawing, crawling fingers to seize the edges of the horizon. Was this some sort of freak storm? Was that why we should close all the windows and stay inside? As I watched the darkening sky, I began to feel strangely unsettled. There was something not quite right about the clouds. The way they coiled and shifted. The way they seemed much more solid and lower to the ground than usual. The way certain parts moved in unison within their depths, almost as if. almost as if something massive was moving inside of them. I cried out and leapt away from the window. I'm not a coward, I dare say, but at that moment, I panicked. I tore the curtain across the window, horrified of getting even one more glimpse of that twisting sky. And then I ran through the house, making sure every curtain and blind was down, locking the doors, and finally sitting down in my living room, shivering. It took me a few minutes to calm down and for my breathing to settle. Eventually, I even started feeling a bit foolish. What had I been so afraid of? There was nothing outside. The clouds... It was probably just a trick of the light that had made the sky look so strange. Or just abnormal weather patterns. Nothing more to it. I jumped, and then laughed at my own foolishness as my phone rang. Picking it up, I went to pour myself some water. Hello. Hey man, this is Patrick. How are you doing? Hey dude. I smiled, relaxing at the sound of my friend's voice. Yeah, it's pretty good here. Got a little spooked by the weather outside is all. Did you get a weird automated message just now too? About not looking at the sky and stuff. Patrick laughed at the other end of the phone. Yeah, man, shit's whack, am I right? I couldn't help but smile. Patrick was the type of person who would fake his own funeral for a laugh. Nothing could keep him down. "'That's actually why I'm calling you,' he continued. "'Unless you want to risk alien abduction or whatever this is. I guess we're off for beers tonight.' "'Ah, crap, you're right,' I said. "'Shame, I was looking forward to seeing you. Hey, say hi to Ellie for me.' "'After this is over,' We can grab a bite to eat, maybe. Yeah, yeah, man, that sounds good. By the way, what do you think this could be? Allie was saying some crazy conspiracy stuff, like the government is testing new aircraft or something. Sometimes it's hard being the brains in this relationship. Distantly, from Patrick's background, I heard a faint. Shut up! We both giggled. I don't know, man, I replied. There might actually be something to that. I looked at the sky before I closed the curtains. Weird clouds everywhere all of a sudden. Looked like there was something moving inside of them. Probably just a trick of the light, though. Hmm, I don't know. One Patrick on the other side of the line. That sounds crazy, man. Maybe I'll take a look, too. What's the worst that can happen, am I right? Yeah, yeah, just be careful for the aliens, dude. I laughed at my friend's disbelieving tone. If they come to kidnap you, remember to tell them to leave your neighbors alone. I have work to do, and otherworldly abduction might mess up my timetable. I say goodbye to him and Ellie, and I hung up, and went for another glass of water. And that's when I heard it. The gentle patter of rain on the windows... Other than that, there was no sound from outside. Even the birds had quieted down. I decided to cook some lunch. It looked like it was going to be a long, boring day at work, so I might as well eat and then get on with it. I just started heating up some water when I heard someone shouting outside my house. It was faint, muffled by the rain and the curtained windows, but quite unmistakable. I went to open the curtains and look outside, and I stopped short. A strange sense of foreboding and horror washed over me. If I opened the curtains, I would see the sky again. That very thought filled me with an uncertain fear. Why? What was going on outside? What was I so scared of? The shouting drew me out of my reverie. I pressed my ear to the curtained window to hear better, and finally... I recognized the voice. It was Patrick, and he was shouting, screaming, as if in the most terrible pain. The hills with eyes. The space with no dimension. They're watching. They've seen me. They descend in space is meaningless. They will arrive. The travelers from beyond the clockwork. The watchers from beyond the stars. God, oh God. I stumbled back from the window in shock. Patrick's voice, usually so carefree, was twisted into an agonized shriek. I can only imagine how loud he must have been screaming for it to carry all the way to me, through the walls of both our houses and over the rain outside. A crash of glass outside made me jump. Patrick's voice returned louder and clearer. He must have broken the window and crawled outside onto the lawn. The rain, the rain, the tears of the clockwork, the tears of God, descending. I've seen you, and you've seen me. I can't hide. I can't hide. Under the skin of the cosmos, under the surface of the ocean, the eyes behind the moon, they've seen me. Something changed outside. It took me a second to recognize what it was. The rain had stopped. Everything was silent for a second. The universe drew its breath. And then the concussive bang of a gunshot made me jump. There was a hideously organic gurgle from outside. And then the thump and splash of something heavy falling to the rain soaked ground. Some sudden mental resolve, the desire to know what just happened in fear for my friend seized me. I rushed to the window and lifted the corner of the curtain just slightly to see outside without catching a glimpse of the skies. I screamed as I saw what was lying on the grass outside. Patrick, lying limp and spread-eagled, the grip of a handgun stuck from the ruins of his mouth. He had rammed it so deep down his throat that it hadn't fallen out, even after ripping through his head and splattering its contents all over the ground. I stumbled away from the window, and fell to the ground in shock. What was happening? What had happened to Patrick? And then I realized... He had looked up. Irreverent, carefree Patrick. I told him about what I had seen in the sky. And he had looked up. So go inside, close the windows, draw the curtains, lock the doors. And whatever you do, don't look up into the sky. There's something in the clouds. I have been snowed in at a cabin in northern Maine. There is something out there in the storm. Written by Bleep Bloop 1990. The trip was supposed to be a chance to disconnect and recharge far from civilization, cell phone towers, and billable hours, An opportunity to take a stock of my life in the quiet splendor of nature while reconnecting with old friends. Well, if nothing else, I've certainly had plenty of time to take stock. Calling the impetus for this trip a midlife crisis that doesn't feel entirely accurate, Both because I'm not yet middle-aged and because a gripping term like crisis seems entirely too exciting. Perhaps quarter-life ennui is the right term. I had been in the workforce post-law school for three years and had begun to see the rest of my life stretch out before me in a never-ending array of conference calls, memos, and corporate compliance agreements. What truly inspired the trip, I suppose? was not the realization that the prospect of 40 more years spent in the trenches of corporate law was unacceptably bleak. But that I was coming to accept it wouldn't be so bad, really. A comfortable life, a privileged life in many respects. It felt like the moment the biting wind fades away, the cold snow becomes a warm blanket, and one teeters on the edge of acceptance Recognizing that freezing to death might not be so bad after all. I'm aware that thinking of my cushy corporate job as a metaphor for freezing to death is pretty ironic, given that there's a pretty good chance now that I will actually freeze to death. I suppose that I could laugh at it if, you know, I wasn't worried about freezing to death, or worse. I think maybe I have not yet had the inordinate amount of whiskey I need before I'm ready to think about that. Or worse. The sky was a gunmetal blue when we crossed over the state line into Kittery. By the time that we hit Somerset County, two and a half hours north of 195, it had shifted to a steely gray, the clouds hanging low and depressive. The first flakes began to fall in Dexter, where we stopped to load up on groceries, beer, and to final impulse buys at the arenas located within the heart of downtown surrounded by empty brick buildings and boarded up businesses. I had lived 18 years of my life in Somerset County, and had spent too many cold hours as a teenager, sitting in a car lodged on the side of the road, waiting for rescue, to think casually, given the nature of our destination, of continuing on in a snowstorm. But the forecast hadn't called for any snow, and we figured any flurries would assume it up we were heading deep into the north main woods. Jason's family had some ancestral mansion located well within the unorganized territory, a perfect spot according to him, for a week of ice fishing and day drinking. The appeal of dropping off the face of the world and spending a week in one of the few areas of the country still largely unmapped, where the places were not given names but numbers, held a deep appeal to me, and apparently to Jason as well. Jason and I had gone to high school together and now worked at the same boutique patent law firm in D.C. We had somehow convinced our friends, scattered about the United States and a great diaspora common to Maine college graduates, that a week in a secluded house in the Maine woods in January would be both fun and an ideal reunion experience. The snow stayed light and intermittent until we turned off the narrow two-lane Blacktop Road and onto the gravelly-choked confines of the old logging road that led to the house. Our small caravan of cars had to slow to a creep. 4x4 drive engaged and headlights throwing back a screen of darting white static in the darkening evening as the snow, curiously unmentioned by the weather forecast on Wabi TV 5 the prior evening, picked up. We discussed turning back, trying again the next day, None of us wanted to risk going off the road this far from emergency services, our reliable cellular reception, but decided to press on. I found myself replaying that moment incessantly in my head, imagining the life that I had been living if we had gone through the onerous process of turning around on the small one-lane road, driving out of the woods, and turned our headlights south. I picture the alternative me, sitting in a motel room somewhere south and east, maybe in Greenville or Dover, Foxcroft, probably feeling pretty discouraged that the trip had fallen apart and trying to figure out a new plan. But sitting in a place with electricity and central heating, not trapped in a dark, crumbling mansion, hemmed in by shrieking winds and endless, remorseless snow. Shrieking winds that, sometimes at night mostly, when the thoughts in my head began to feel less like my physiological process, at least somewhat under my control, and more like starving rats skittering and climbing in panic, sound like the scratching of claws against wood, and the chittering of unspeakable creatures waiting to feed. But we didn't turn back. We pressed on through the snow. The effort of keeping the car within the poorly defined boundaries of what was barely a road required immense concentration making each tense moment stretch out. But the unchanging nature of the view, restricted to the narrow window of light able to cut through the swirling snow, lent the drive an eerily timeless quality. We were driving in silence, the only sound the swish of the wipers and the growl of the engine, when an object slammed against the car with a reverberating crash. More crashes followed in quick succession, and I saw a deer leap out of the gloom. Its eyes, highlighted by the glare of the headlights, were wide and swiveling wildly within the sockets, foam billowing from the corners of its mouth. It landed with a wrenching smash in the hood, and hubs began beating a staccato drumbeat, splintering the windshield. The animal writhed furiously, and I saw panic in its eyes, as it finally got free and hurled itself away, running headlong in the direction that we had come. More deer and other small animals, their eyes ablaze in the light, darted past, running in an outright panic, heedless of our cars as if fleeing a fire or a predator nipping at their heels. And then they were past us and all was silent again. <clears throat> well, that was strange, drawled Ramesh. Are all the animals in this state that weird? We drove on. After a seemingly immeasurable period of time spent peering through the windshield into a landscape of white static, knuckles white at the wheel, the house came into view. It revealed itself slowly out of the darkness. A black wooden form nestled against the dark outline of a cliff, flanked by tall pines. Jason was unaware of when exactly the house was built. Apparently, sometime in the late nineteenth century at the behest of his rather eccentric great-grandfather, Alicia Chamberlain, a lumber magnate whose vast fortune had long since been squandered by dissolute family members, bequeathing to Jason's parents only this last Ozymandiac monument to his wealth. The local lore was that old Alicia had experienced great difficulty in hiring crews to construct this palace in the North Woods. Apparently, the great untamed forest had so terrified the motley band of French Canadians, Irish emigrants, and urban war chorus of volunteers, employed to hew wood and haul, baroque furniture through miles of rocky country and up the turbulent waterways that they quit faster than they could be hired. Many simply disappeared, walking off the job without even picking up last paychecks, melting away like smoke into the pines, Alicia, a man who had amassed an inordinate amount of money by underpaying workers, ruthlessly extinguishing business rivals, and exploiting the Earth's resources, had, like many of today's moguls, conveniently waited until after he stood alone and unchallenged to top his empire of wealth, to develop a conscience and devote himself to improving the morals of the common man. To that end, the old lumber magnate had apparently had great plans to build, A new Jerusalem in the main woods, a utopia where society could be reborn, free from corrupting influences. Unfortunately, soon after the completion of his mansion, intended to be a cornerstone of this new shining city in the woods, Alicia, like his workers before him, simply disappeared into the silent evergreens, and the whole project collapsed. A whole host of folktales came from the abortive attempt, with the few workers who did not simply walk off the job without a trace, telling of strange sounds and dark, supernatural creatures that hunted at night. The verdict of a book, written by a professor from the University of Maine, at Farmington, who collected and catalogued tales of local Maine folklore, was that these supernatural tales and mass disappearances were likely the relatively common Result of those unfamiliar with the main woods spending dark nights in unfamiliar territory, and hearing the admittedly terrifying cries of ordinary local animals, such as loons and wildcats. Stephen's jeep slid to a halt in a spray of snow and gravel. The headlights threw the front of the wooden structure into sharp relief against the blackness, revealing dark and rotted steps crawling up to a cavernous set of double wooden doors. The house was rectangular and folded into a seam against the dark cliff that rose above it. It looked somewhat like a stately 18th century New England church had been airlifted from the center of a tiny small town and dropped unceremoniously, left forgotten in the wilderness to age and warp with the changing seasons. The slam of car doors sounded faintly through the blowing wind, and we paused briefly in front of the towering structure our shadows cast high and long by the bright headlights before rushing to get inside out of the cold. The unexpected snowstorm and the weird behavior of the animals had spooked me. I had been living in D.C. since I had left for law school and had forgotten how helpless one could feel in the face of a powerful main blizzard. But with the heat of a fire crackling in the fireplace, its light amplified by strategically placed kerosene lanterns, the warm burn and comforting glow of several whiskey drinks resting in my stomach, and these sounds of laughter and chatter as we planned out our next few days, drowning out the whine of the wind. I began to relax. My struggle to sleep that night, recalling how the black heft of the cliff seemed almost to shimmer and vibrate against the sky when we had arrived. How the shadows of the trees in our headlights stretched, contorted, and deformed across the frosty white ground. The wind howled outside, it felt like, like something unnatural in this place was tearing at the fabric of reality, drying it tight like the skin on a drum. The snow continued the next day, several feet had fallen overnight, and I had to throw my weight against the heavy wooden door in the morning in order to open it against the press. I watched blearily, more than a little hungover as the snow which had drifted against the door collapsed inward into the house. It fell to the ground with a light woof, seeming to spread out over the scuffed floor almost hungrily, as if eager to get inside. I stumbled to the side of the house and rested against the rough bark of a towering pine to relieve myself, watching my breath leave in great white plumes. The mansion was placed in a high point, and the land around it fell away sharply. The clouds hung low and dark in the sky, restricting the view, but I could feel the presence of the thick undeveloped woods spilling away in all directions. I could hear the low roar of the river below, pounding its way through the narrow defile formed between the steep and snow-covered cliffs on either side. When I went back inside, Ramesh was puttering around and making breakfast on the portable gas grill that we had packed. He flashed me a smile and handed me a Baxter IPA from a cooler propped open near the grill. Try some hair of the dog that bit you, bud. He droned in a ridiculously awful attempt at a thick main accent. I groaned and swatted it away. Ram, I'm not 21 anymore. I need some aspirin, some water, and a nap. I fell heavily onto one of the camp chairs that we had brought. The furniture left in the old house had largely been sold, and what did remain looked dangerously fragile and smelled faintly of decay. I felt tired, old, and vaguely depressed. I wondered briefly what I had been thinking when Jason and I dreamed up this plan after one too many after-work beers both in that euphoric state between buzzed and drunk where every idea seems stupendous. Did I really think that coming to this old, decrepit mansion in the middle of nowhere would be some kind of enlightening, eat, pray, love moment? Instead, I was still depressed and at a loss with what I should do with my life. Only now, I was depressed in a musty mansion without electricity or running water, instead of in my cozy studio in D.C., These morose and okay, pathetically self-pitying thoughts were interrupted when Stephen upended my chair, spilling me unceremoniously onto the floor. Let's carpe the shit out of this DM, my dudes. Ted, who out of all of us was the only one who had remained firmly in place in Somerset County, opening an extremely successful construction business in Skowagon, had brought his snowmobile trailer along. True blue a central manor that he was, he had brought along enough snowmobiles for all of us to ride if doubled up. He drove first, breaking the trail, with Josh sitting behind him shouting directions. It took nearly an hour to make it through the still falling snow to the frozen lake at the foothills of the ridge. Jason had sworn up and down that long repeated family lore attested that this lake had the best ice fishing in the entire state. Given that, it had only belatedly come to our attention that nobody in his immediate family had even been to this mansion since his grandfather had passed. It was less the palatial manner we had been expecting, and more of a creepy old dump. I had begun to grow skeptical of his claim. However, I had to admit that on this point he had not been exaggerating, and soon an array of trout purchase pikes, and other fish I couldn't name lay stretched out on the ice, Somehow I had forgotten that ice fishing was largely just standing around a hole in the ice, drinking and waiting. It soon lost its charm. With the snow still picking up, we elected to head back early. I was turning to follow Alex back to the waiting snowmobiles when, out of the corner of my eye, I saw something move. Turning slowly in my thick winter clothes, the snow sticking heavily to my boots, I looked in the direction of the movement. Something black and impossibly large moved uctuously underneath the surface of the ice, visible where we had cleared the snow. I heard a low scraping sound as its many limbs brushed against the surface. I felt my pulse sounding within the confines of my hat and hood. My mouth seemed suddenly very dry. I heard a low, guttural roar come reverberating out of the impenetrable white snow. And let out a short, involuntary scream. Alex turned back to me. Feeling a bit jumpy, Cade. I realized that the roar that I had heard was the snowmobile's engine kicking into life. And let out a wheezy laugh. I guess I was feeling a little jumpy, imagining things. The falling snow pressed in on all sides. The heavy flakes cutting visibility down to a narrow sphere beyond which it felt any number of things could be lurking just out of sight. Alex had one too many slugs of Jim Beam on the ice, so I'd drive on the way back. The heavy white pellets bit into faces and exposed skin, and forced us to move slowly to avoid toppling into a ravine or hitting a tree. The snowmobile felt unwieldy beneath me, its thick bulk sluggish and slow to respond. I hadn't owned a snowmobile growing up, and had only ever driven them when visiting friends. I had always felt unreasonably jealous of those friends who were gifted snowmobiles for Christmas or for birthdays. To me, owning a snowmobile or an ATV, the other ambiguous central Maine status symbol, had been a testament to wealth and privilege. It was only when I had left Maine and went to law school... That I realized that these markers of wealth were not seen as such by my classmates. That these people probably looked down on such middle-class toys. That there existed wealth and privilege on a scale I had not previously imagined. When the hulking shape of the mansion emerged out of the softly falling snow, I felt relieved. On the drive, I kept seeing, or imagining I saw, images of dark shapes flitting between the trees. Something or somethings keeping pace with us and eyeing us hungrily. The hair in the back of my neck was standing up, and I felt a cold sweat break out despite the chill. When we had opened the door, we saw that snow carpeted the floor and our belongings. It must have blown in through the gaps in the wall, said Alex, sounding more confident than he felt. We didn't speak much as we quickly swept it out. I tried not to notice how it seemed to resist being pushed out, how the white material seemed to move in ways inconsistent with the wind, as if eager to wrap around our warm bodies. That night, we were all a bit subdued. It was dawning on us that pressing on through the snow had been an extremely stupid decision. The small old logging road leading to the house was undoubtedly not plowed by anyone, and the snow was already too deep to make it back out by car. We anxiously listened to the weather report that came in intermittently through sharp bursts of static on TED's portable radio. It was difficult to make out, but we all distinctly heard the weather report on 92.3 say, Expect the clear skies across the state to continue for the next few days. What the hell? Ram burst out in frustration, Did telling weather by satellite not yet replace reading bird entrails in this sorry state? It's a full-on blizzard out there. He gesticulated wildly toward the heavy stained glass windows that lined the walls, snow sticking eagerly, almost greedily to the panes. The sun had not yet fallen, but it was dark in the house. The thick blankets of snow, allowing only a meager gray light to filter through, Maybe it's very localized, said Ted hesitantly. They may not bother mentioning a small storm out here where hardly anyone lives. Yeah, maybe, I agree, but it's still weird. We checked the weather so many times before coming. The satellites showed nothing for the next few days, not even scattered clouds. Where did this come from? Nobody had a good answer. We all went to sleep shortly after. Now, I'm lying here, trying to convince myself that these scratching and scaring sounds against the roof and walls are just branches blowing in the wind. That the snow I keep needing to brush off my sleeping bag is just falling randomly through small gaps in the ceiling, not seeking me out. I started writing this account today. I'm not really sure why. Part boredom, part a slow creeping suspicion that something very odd is going on. This place just doesn't feel right. I remember now a weird story recently made the rounds about a small coastal main town, Malsumis, that was abandoned by its residents. I find myself wondering if perhaps there are still unexplored corners of this world, unturned rocks where things darken inexplicable fester. I think tomorrow we will try to figure out the best way out of here. We are all going to die in this place. We tried to make it out today. We didn't make it 500 yards before they started coming out of the snow. The morning broke with pale light filtering through the granite gray clouds. The snow hadn't let up. Ted's massive truck was buried almost above the hood, and the roofs of our various rented SUVs were barely visible. None of us had brought snowshoes other than Ramesh, who had insisted much to our decision and stopped in Freeport to pick up a pair of sticker new bright orange snowshoes from L.L. Bean. We elected to ride these snowmobiles back to the main road and deal with our cars and other gear later. We all paused before heaving open the heavy double doors, a team effort due to the accumulated snow. I think that all of us had the same unspoken, irrational fear of stepping out into the whirling blanket of snow, but were unwilling to give voice to it. It was an instinctual fear, as if coming from some long-dormant reptilian section of the brain, attuned to an ancient threat. A threat long banished since we learned to wield fire and bend the world to our will, but the one that still lay in wait in the dark recesses of the world. The snow was falling heavily as we pulled away from the mansion. The broken slats leading up to the door lent the building an imbecilic broken smile, as if it watched us leave with manic derision knowing we would be back. I was driving behind Ted and Alex. These snowmobiles' single headlights tend to spite the morning hour. As heavy snow pressed in claustrophobically, blocking the sun and shrouding the tops of the trees in an impenetrable white swarm of flakes. The roar of the engines was loud, and the tang of gasoline strung in the air as we slid onto the open powder of the road and began to gain speed. I could barely make out Alex's form hunched behind Ted, holding on tightly, but still clearly saw what happened. I saw a black, shadowy form detach itself from a nearby tree and swoop in a fluid moment, almost too fast to follow toward Alex. The thing's eyes glowed red and gleaming teeth sprung at all angles from its mouth. Alex was knocked off the snowmobile in a single blow, and sprawled heavily at the foot of a tree. Blood splattered Pollock-like across the snow, where it quickly dissipated as if greedily devoured. Alex began to scream, it sounded unlike anything I had ever heard, high pitched and inhuman. We rolled over and started to crawl away from the creature, unfolding and standing tall above him. It towered nearly as tall as the trees. Dark black spikes were arranged along its back and they twitched as if in anticipation. I sat frozen in my seat, watching in numb horror as Alex pulled himself forward frantically on his arms and legs, looking back in fear. Blood still spurted from the claw marks across his chest, and disappeared quickly into the heavy snow. White, chittering, spider-like creatures descended soundlessly from the trees above and landed on Alex. More crawled from behind the trees, their many pale blue eyes swiveling wildly on stalks. Alex screamed briefly, and then was silent. Ted appeared out of the snow at his side his eyes wide and his jaw clamped tight. He raised a small hand held axe high and brought it down on one of the chittering creatures, noisily feasting on Alex. It screeched, an inhuman piercing noise that made my ears ring. My paralysis broken, I swung off the snowmobile, its engine growling in neutral and ran toward them. Communication between my brain and body seemed to have broken down in some fundamental way, and my legs collapsed beneath me, sending me heavily into deep-packed snow. It seemed to move beneath me, cold and eager, and I let out a wordless groan of revulsion. Stephen and Jason were running toward Ted and the red, broken remains of Alex. A loud thud reverberated through the woods, shifting pottery snow from the green pine branches, and I saw a many-toed leg strike the ground next to me. The creature towered above the trees, its upper half lost within the falling snow. An unthinkably large claw-like appendage, encased in a blue-light shell, swept down from above and neatly cut Steven in two, leaving his bottom half to stag around for a few awkward steps before collapsing gracelessly into the snow in a spray of red. We all turned to run in unthinking panic. The snowmobile had died while waiting in neutral and I frantically fumbled with my thick gloves, trying to work the pull-start engine. I could see out of the corner of my eye the black shadow-like creature stalking me languidly through the trees, its red eyes smoldering. The engine caught with a roar and I pulled the gas lever before fully on board, the machine jerking away in a spray of snow, nearly clipping a tree and overturning before I righted myself on it and sped back toward the house. Ted was ahead of me, These sprayed from his spinning treads splattering against the frame of my snowmobile. Suddenly, he was twisting in the air, his snowmobile skewing off the road without him as he struggled, ensnared in almost invisible twines of white that stretched across the road, cutting off our retreat. Thin ribbons of blood poured down his body as he struggled in the trap and these strands cut into him. The chittering white spider creatures swarmed out from the surrounding trees, and his screams were cut short. In the few seconds within which I saw this happen, I yanked my snowmobile to the right, smashing my knee painfully against the hard bark of a pine tree, and skidded crazily around the web and back onto the road. Jason and Ramesh followed closely behind me, sharing a sled together. I threw myself off the snowmobile, letting it continue on to slam into the side of Ted's nearly buried truck and pelted up the broken stairs feeling imagined grasping claws and teeth nip at my heels. Ramesh, Jason and I burst through the heavy doors, swinging them shut with a satisfying thud behind us. Then it was deathly quiet. The only sound our heavy ragged gasp as we caught our breath. Jason was crying quietly. We waited to see if the creatures would follow us into the shelter of the house, making an end of it, but they did not. It continued to snow all day, and I can tell by the fading light that it's almost night. These scraping, chittering sounds are almost constant now, with the occasional loud thud of impossibly large footsteps reverberating through the mansion. I feel like a mouse trapped in a hole, listening to the switching tail of a cat that may soon tire of the game and strike out of boredom. Jason hasn't spoken since we got inside, I think something deep within him might have broken. He is only sat cross-legged in the middle of the building, as far from the sifting snow as possible, rocking back and forth. I think my mind may go at any minute, too. It feels like my sanity is being held together by a fraying rope, and when the last few strands go, I will drop into the darkness below. It might be a relief. My mind has dived into two Cades. One Cade has accepted what he saw. That creatures from a nightmare are waiting outside in the snow and is desperately trying to think of a way to safety. The other Cade knows that things like this simply don't exist. That the likely explanation is I suffered some type of mental breakdown and I'm locked in a padded room somewhere, being watched over by serious looking people in white coats Scribbling down progress notes on thick pads. I hope the second kid is right, but I can feel the cold inside of my bones. I can taste the blood in my mouth from where I bit my tongue. I can smell the ancient, rank smell of creatures and out of this world. We need to find a way out. I tried to talk to Jason, but he merely laughed wildly. His eyes are bright and large and they in the gathering doom. The snow. He whispered softly, forcing me to bend down to hear him, smelling the damp sweat and terror radiating off of him, seeing these spittle flecked lips tremble. It's like we're bugs in a Venus flytrap. It waited for us to get too far in, and then it closed the snow around us. We can't get out. We won't get out. It's just waiting. He giggled again and I couldn't get any more intelligible words out of him. Ram is pale, his lips bloody from worry gnawing, but he has gathered together all the tools that could be used as weapons, and is methodically sifting through our gear. I think if we can survive this night, he and I will try to escape in the morning. I just hope this is only here. I hope this isn't the whole world now. I don't know the point of even trying to post this, aside from a few intermittent flashes. I've only had a sporadic service since leaving Greenville. Maybe somehow it'll go through, though. At times, the connection comes through loud and clear despite the distance. I'll leave it trying to connect overnight. If you read this, just know that there are pockets in this world where reality is stretched thin, where things can come through. Stay away from them. I read my grandpa's old diary from the 1900s. I found out that he was a monster. Written by Russell82. I found my grandpa's diary as we were going through his stuff since he had passed away due to the virus. Here's a story from it. I don't know how it is happening or why it's even happening. I should probably start from the beginning. It started happening about 20 days ago and it hasn't stopped. I was at my suburban home in Louisiana when it first started. I was watching the local news when I'd got up to take a leak. I walked to the bathroom when all of a sudden I dropped to the ground, yowling in pain. My left shoulder had felt as if it was being torn apart. Tendon from tendon and muscle from muscle. I hadn't realized it actually was being torn apart. Until I turned my head to look at the gruesome scene. Something was growing through my shoulder. I thought. I screamed. Being terrified as my flesh was being ripped clean off the bone. And then it just stopped. Pain and all. I slowly got up, stumbling to the bathroom with tears streaming down my face. I finally got to the bathroom and I looked in the mirror. My eyes widened and I gasped. All the flesh, muscle and everything else holding my shoulder together was gone. It was plain bone. I couldn't feel it though, which was the oddest thing. Around the bone was the part of my neck and lower arm where the meat of my shoulder had used to sit. The flesh on each sides of the empty hole were seeming to decay, oddly quick too. I turned my head to my used-to-be left shoulder and screamed in fear. My flesh was really rotting away by the second... I had looked back in the mirror just in time to see what looked like the flesh I had just seen decaying a second ago, healing. You could tell that it had been decaying, but then it just stopped. I lost my balance when I tried to step back from the mirror, automatically falling backwards onto the hard tile ground. Dang it, I grunted as I regained enough balance to get back up on both feet. After regaining my balance, I could smell it, the same smell you smell when you come across a dead deer or raccoon while you're hiking. The stench filled my nostrils as I easily gagged, not having a hot tolerance for the decay smell. By then, I had started to come out of shock, I stumbled around the bathroom trying to get out. I finally did and I stumbled down the hallway. I hastily searched for my phone, only to find that it was dead. Useless. I mumbled under my breath. Now you're probably wondering how I stayed so calm during my literal body rotting. Well, I think it's because of the state of shock I was in. I could hardly even walk, let alone realize what was actually happening to panic. When I did realize what was happening... I panicked and grabbed my phone to put it on the charger. While I was waiting for it to boot up, it had happened again, except on my foot now. My foot had this sudden pain that felt like I was being stabbed with 100 knives over and over. I looked down just to see all the flesh on the top of my foot falling off, like I had been bitten by a venomous snake, and its venom was getting the best of me. My screamed in a mix of emotions and pain and fear. I fell to the floor, screaming and sobbing. You might think I'm a sort of a baby, but imagine your flesh and your body just falling right off, with the same pain of it being ripped off piece by piece. My had started to feel lightheaded when the pain just stopped, just like my shoulder had. I opened my eyes to see my foot, just bone, with the small pieces of meat left. But, just like my shoulder had done, the flesh of my calf had started to rot. And with that came the smell again. The stench filled my nose as I helplessly watched the skin of my leg turn from pale white to a gray, greenish color. I was turning into a zombie. Maybe something worse. Heck if I knew. The stench was still filling my nose as I somehow heard the ding of my phone being charged over all my wailing. I somehow pushed myself to crawl to the table to grab my phone, even through all the stench and pain. I unlocked my phone and hastily swiped to the phone app. I dialed a 911 and waited for them to answer while still sobbing. Hello, this is Emergency Services, how may I help you? A soft voice squeaked over the phone. Please, was all I could get out due to my sobbing. The person over the phone replied in a concerned tune saying, Sir, are you alright? I pulled myself together long enough to get out a few words. Please, help me, was all I could get out before sobbing again. The person replied to me as I could hear the clicking of their keyboard. Sir, we're sending an ambulance out now. What's wrong? They croaked over the phone. I was all I could get out before my phone had died. Stupid phone. I said in between cries. I sat on the floor, feeling dazed for maybe 15 minutes, before I'd heard the ambulance. Everything went black. I don't know what happened after that because I woke up in a hospital bed. The smell had still not left, and that's the first thing that I noticed. My eyes opened wider, I looked down to see my foot covered in a white medical wrap along with my shoulder. I had just been at my home decaying a second ago, now I'm in a hospital bed getting treated. As soon as a nurse noticed me awake, she had run out of the room and she came running back with what I assumed was a police officer. I couldn't really tell because everything was still so blurry. Sir, can you hear me? The nurse asked in a panicky voice. I tried to talk, but I couldn't, realizing I had a tube down my throat. I nodded my head slowly as I heard the officer talk. Miss, I had to interrupt, but do you realize we have a criminal in our hands? The officer said in a deep, almost intimidating voice. I thought to myself panicking. What do you mean by criminal? The nurse must have noticed my panic in wide eyes, because she spoke to me in a soft, gentle voice. Sir, do you remember anything at all from the previous night? I tried to talk. Forgetting about the tube of my throat. Everything was becoming more clear as I noticed the officer rushing the nurse out of the room, leading more officers back in. They had handcuffed me to the railing of the bed. I tried fighting it, but I couldn't. I heard the nurse yell at the officers You can't do that, he's still injured. One short and stubby female officer that had her hair up in a tight bun had replied. Ma'am, you need to leave, or we'll have to use force. I watched the nurse leave the room as the officers uncuffed me from the railing and cuffed my hands together behind my back. They removed all the medical equipment from within my body. I had felt stronger than ever when they had removed the tubes. In a dry, croaky voice, I asked, Why are you doing this? because I really didn't know what was going on or what I had done. They didn't speak. They just kept rolling me towards the elevator. I could feel myself turning into something. Something incredibly strong. I broke free from the handcuffs and wheelchair. The sheriff, I was guessing, yelled, Fire! Fire now! I felt bullets penetrating into my abdomen and head. None of them hurt. I was so confused as to why I would just been shot at multiple times but was still alive. And that's when it took over. I had no control over my actions. I could only think. I charged at a younger officer that didn't seem to know what he was doing. All the medical staff screamed and started running. It was chaos. I tried to make myself stop attacking, but I couldn't. I had no control over what I did. As I rammed the officer into the hospital wall over and over, I began to tear into him. I was a beast. I wasn't my regular 40-year-old self. I wasn't scrawny anymore. I wasn't suffering from anything. It was kind of nice. All my pain was gone and I was stronger than anybody there. Next, I noticed my grotesque body charging after two more officers. After throwing them out the window, I went after the remaining amount of officers. I repeatedly attacked the three officers, ramming them into the wall, knocking them unconscious, probably giving them brain damage and internal bleeding. For some reason, I loved hearing them scream. I had full control now, and I didn't even realize it, but I loved it and I needed more. After seeing probably around eight bodies on the ground around me, I proceeded to jump from the fourth floor of the local hospital, not harming me at all. I looked around to see a surrounding SWAT team with maybe four cop cars. I knew I could easily take them all out. I even smirked at them, and they knew it too. They started firing at me. I didn't feel a thing. I was almost invincible. I charged at the SWAT truck crushing it, along with everybody and everything in it. I heard a variety of voices yelling, Back down! Back down now! They knew that I was too strong for them. But I wasn't finished yet. I've always been looked down on my whole life for my size and my money. So now was my time to get revenge. I made a noise. It was the most deathly screech I've ever heard. I was proud of it. I crashed into the remaining people and the cars that were left. Everybody was finished within five minutes. I was a monster. I was something sinister. I needed to see what I was. I looked into a few broken pieces of the glass off the top of cop cars. I was horrifying. I was at least 12 feet tall, and I had a grotesque build. I was somehow skinny and muscular at the same time. I had completely nothing but rotten flesh hanging off of what seemed to be partially constructed bones, I had long, skinny arms that just draped across the ground. I smiled. I was everything I wanted to be. I had noticed I had three sets of teeth, possibly more. I know I had to have had more than 70 teeth. They were all sharp, like shark's teeth. And then all of a sudden, I didn't have control anymore. Something possessed me to run off into the nearby woods. And then I lost consciousness. I woke up on the side of the road. Back to my normal self. I stole the adrenaline from all those people that I had attacked. I pulled myself off the ground. And I walked to the nearest building I saw. I noticed I wasn't in Louisiana anymore. I was confused, and so I entered the building. It was a small bar. I sat down next to a younger guy. Hey man, what state is this? I asked the younger looking gentleman. He looked at me as if I was stupid and replied with a snobby, this is Arkansas. I was shocked. I saw a close to empty bottle of liquor sitting not too far from me. I deserve this, I thought to myself. As I screwed open the lid of the Jack Daniels liquor, I noticed the news. The reporter was someone familiar. It was the local Louisiana reporter. The reporter looked as if he had just seen a ghost. His voice was shaky and he was pale. The reporter breathed heavily and proceeded to say, The state of Louisiana is under an emergency evacuation due to reasons not eligible to announce on live television. I knew everything and I was proud. I took a sip of my Jack Daniels liquor with a smirk on my face. I've always thought highly of my grandpa, but after reading this, I have to say I'm glad that he's long gone. I got hired to write rules for Strange Jobs. Now my job has its own set of rules. Written by... That exo Guy You know this story by now It's been common in the past year The pandemic ravaged economies worldwide Small businesses went bankrupt in droves because of lockdowns And I'm one of the unlucky ones that found themselves without a paycheck for next month's rent There's not much to say about myself I'm an average guy Average height, weight, and build. Average low-income job. Average crappy apartment. Average bills. Until the local fast food joint went under after a month without business. So I did what everyone else did at that time. I started job hunting. Sending out CVs. Going from interview to interview. Losing my hope bit by bit with each phone call. I didn't have anything to stand out from the crowd. No skill that was in demand. I finished high school and figured I would spend the rest of my life working minimum wage and playing video games. Mass salvation from eviction came out of the blue, in a form I never expected. As a last ditch attempt, I signed up with a job agency, hoping they would succeed where I had failed. I went through the usual procedure of signing contracts, and they sent out my CV. Barely three days later, I got the much-awaited phone call. "'It's a pretty unusual gig,' the agent told me. "'A guy named Seb, about my age and no better position in life than mine. "'But it pays well. "'I'm game,' I said without hesitation. "'With no savings a quarter of a gas tank, "'and only loose change left of my last paycheck, "'I couldn't turn down anything.' When's the interview? No interview, Seb told me. They want to talk to you over the phone, but from what they told me, it's pretty much an accept and your hired deal. That's not at all suspicious. Hey man, it's up to you if you accept, Seb told me. It's a bit suspicious, but you said you're desperate, so I bumped you up the wait list. It probably pays under the table, but hey, he started, but I cut over him. "'It's better than going hungry.' "'Exactly,' Seb said. "'So stick with it, but call back. "'Worst-case scenario, you only have to work there until I find you something else.' "'I will,' I assured him. "'And thanks.' "'No problem,' he answered. "'I'll give them your number. "'Expect to call them the next few days.' "'And with that, he hung up. "'I got busy around the apartment with chores.' but didn't get three minutes deep before my phone rang again. I ran to answer it, having left it charging in the bedroom. Hello. I greeted as I put it to my ear. Good afternoon. Is this Mr. Mark? A delicate, feminine voice asked. That's me, I said, stifling a giggle at hearing Mr. and my name used together. Perfect, the woman said. "'My name is Anna, and I'm calling you on behalf of my employer. "'From what I understand, you're in search of a job.' "'I am,' I answered. "'Awesome,' Anna said with enthusiasm. "'Not the corny HR type either, but genuine enthusiasm. "'She was happy.' "'So, how is this going to work, Miss Anna?' I asked. "'Do I come over for some aptitude test or something?' "'Oh, no, no, no,' Anna said with amusement. "'Nothing of that sort. "'Stay on the line and go to your front door,' she instructed. "'Her request was more than a bit concerning, "'but I did what she had asked of me. "'I got to my front door, which led to the floor's corridor, "'and looked through the people. "'I didn't see anyone. "'So, do I open it?' I asked. "'Yes,' Anna answered.' There should be something on your front doorstep. This whole situation felt faker by the moment. At this point, I was expecting it to be a prank from Seb or something. Maybe he actually worked for one of those prank shows and the job agency was just a facade. I opened the door, expecting a jump scare and a nearby camera to catch all of it. But no one was there. Instead, I saw an envelope on my doormat, placed neatly in the center. An envelope, I asked. Yep, Anna answered. Take it inside and open it. I picked up the dirty yellow thing, pinching it between two fingers as I walked to my kitchen. I sat down at the small table and gingerly opened it, finding a blank piece of old-looking paper inside, along with an expensive-looking fountain pen. Do you read horror stories online, Mr. Mark? Anna asked. Creepy Creepypasta, short stories, found footage types. No, I'm not into reading, I answered. Never was, especially horror. Then you'll have to do a bit of research, I'm afraid, she said. And I could tell that a bit of wind was gone from her sails. Do you want me to write horror stories, I asked. I mean, I could, but I'm no Stephen King. No horror stories, Mr. Mark, Anna assured me. Your job will consist of writing sets of rules. Miss Anna, I'll be real with you for a moment. You lost me, I admit it, convinced that I had blown it anyway. Let me explain. Anna said quickly, it all makes sense in a minute. Go ahead, I'm listening. Your job will consist in coming up with sets of rules, like I already said. You will be given a setting, usually an unsettling one. And you'll have to build said set of rules around that setting. No story, no characters, and no events. Just the rules. Do you understand, Mr. Mark? Not really, I admitted. Read up some stories then. Look for ones where people find rules at new jobs, or when moving to a new home or school. You're bound to find some. Read them and use the pen and paper we provided to write some of the rules. When the list is done, place it back inside the envelope and leave it on your doorstep. You have until tomorrow at dusk. If the envelope isn't on your doorstep by then, we'll assume you're not interested. I'll give it a shot, I said after a few moments of thinking. It wasn't like I had anything better to do with my time. What's the setting? The first one is a test, Anna said, so make the setting whatever you want. We want to see if you offer what we're looking for. Try to make it as scary as possible, she said, cheerily. I'll give it my best, I said, trying to fake the slightest amount of enthusiasm. That's the spirit, Mr. Mark, Anna said. We expect great things from you. I will return with another call after the list is appraised. We will discuss your salary then. We said our goodbyes and she hung up. I made a coffee despite the hour, brought my laptop into the kitchen, and started researching. A quick Google search revealed treasure troves of material, many stories like Anna had described, and just as many communities centered around these stories, and communities like this one. I took to reading the most popular stories I found, which in all honesty was a total drag. I really don't like reading Still, in a few hours, I had a good understanding of what I was supposed to do. Some of these stories creep me out, I'll admit. I'm not a horror enthusiast, but I'm not a scaredy-cat either. Which is all to say that it takes a bit of effort to get under my skin. By midnight, I picked a setting and churned out the first set of rules. They weren't good or scary by any measure, so I went back on them and did them again distilling that creepy feeling further. At the time, I thought that maybe I had a knack for writing, a hidden talent that I had never picked up on up to that point. I could already see books with my name on them, earning me serious cash. Looking back on it, I realized it was just the newfound sense of purpose after almost a month without one that had spurred me on. Anyway, After multiple revisions, I was satisfied with the result. So, I wrote the rules on the paper and put it back inside the envelope. Seeing that it was nearly 4am, and I had been awake for almost 22 hours at that point, I went to sleep. I woke up at about 2 in the afternoon, and decided to leave the envelope outside as Anna had instructed, but to keep on the lookout and see who would come for it. Now, I was still convinced it was a prank show or something like that, but I figured I would get some cash for my effort and for the right to broadcast it. And so I waited, eyes glued to the people. Five minutes turned to ten, and then to half an hour, but no one came. Of course no one would come, I thought. How would they even know if I don't call them? As I was ready to throw in the towel and call sub. My phone rang. I recognized the number right away. Good afternoon, Mr. Mark. Anna greeted me. Hello, I said. The list is done. Will you send someone to pick it up? I asked. Well, That's what I'm calling you for. Anna answered. The rules have been appraised. My superiors are very satisfied with your work. You're hired, Mr. Mark. How? When? I asked, dumbfounded. "'opening the door and finding the envelope still there. "'When you start tonight at 10 p.m., "'a nine-hour shift including breaks. "'I will text you the address shortly.' "'Anna said, ignoring my question. "'We hope to see you there, Mr. Mark.' "'With that cheerful remark, she hung up. "'I tried to call back a few times, but it never went through. "'A chirpy, robotic voice told me that the number was no longer in use.' I received a text day a few minutes later that contained an address about half an hour away. But trying to call that number gave the same result. I was creeped out before, but this sealed the deal. I didn't know what they were playing at. I just knew that I wanted no part in it anymore. So I resolved to call Seb back, politely asking him, what the heck, and to tell him to find me something else. But before I got to do any of that... I noticed something out of place. The envelope was placed neatly in the center of the doormat again. I picked it up cautiously, eyeing the empty corridor for any sign of movement. The envelope felt thicker between my fingers, but ever so slightly lighter than before. Opening it, I found $300 inside in $20 bills. I know that might not sound like much, and it really isn't an exorbitant amount of money. But at that moment, it was a lifesaver for me. So, despite my better judgment, I gave it a try after all. I already got $300 out of the deal that far, so it was definitely worth my time if nothing else. I went grocery shopping to restock the fridge, filled up the car, cooked and ate a proper dinner for the first time that month, and waited for night to come. I left home 40 minutes before my shift. The phone's GPS picked up the address right away, leading me out of the city and onto some battered country roads. I passed through a few small towns on the way, but barely saw any other cars on the road. The GPS led me off of asphalt and onto beaten dirt at some point, into some dark woods. Alarm bells went off in my head telling me how bad of an idea this was, but I ignored them. The belief that this was just a prank grew stronger, pushing back against the mounting dread and paranoia. After ten more minutes through the woods, I saw something between the trees. A three-story building with a flat rooftop, lined with dark windows. The GPS pointed me straight at it, and as I approached... A tall concrete fence topped with barbed wire came into view. Some empty parking spaces greeted me as I entered the clearing, so I pulled into one. I was close enough to the gate to see that the chain around its handles dangled freely, leaving it a lot. I got out of my car cautiously, leaving the engine running in case I needed to make a hasty retreat. "'Guys, you can come out!' I yelled into the silent night, I know this is a prank, ha, ah, you got me good. No answer came, but I waited for a couple of minutes hoping that they would give up. I was sure there were cameras in some bushes nearby filming me, waiting for my reaction. But instead, as a handful of minutes turned to ten, nothing happened. I walked closer to the gate to try to see if anyone was inside and the feeling of dread that was steadily building up inside of me shot up to 11. Next to the gate, mounted on the flat surface of the cement fence, was a metal plate. This can't be real. It's impossible. I thought as I read the text on the plate, Sunny Hills Asylum was written on it, along with the address in a smaller font. The location I imagined for my set of rules They probably got access to my search history, I thought. I probably saw that name somewhere in a story and I appropriated it, and they figured it out. I was half satisfied with my conclusion, but it didn't make my mounting panic go away. If this was some prank show, it was awfully elaborate. I didn't know how to proceed. I was torn between returning to my car to leave or going inside to see this through. Looking back to the forest for any signs of life, I noticed a movement in the darkness. Something was there, but it was too fast to be human. It darted between the trees, hiding in the foliage, and I felt a bout of nausea when I caught sight of it again. That sealed it. I didn't want to stick around and risk getting mauled by some wild animal. I pulled on my phone as I power walked to the car and saw the clock turn to 10 p.m. The car produced a stutter, and I heard its engine die. What the hell? I thought with confusion. The car was a piece of crap, but it didn't have any problems I knew of besides being a bit old. I dashed to it and threw myself in the driver's seat, reaching for the keys to try and start the car. The engine rumbled, but it failed with a pathetic sputter. A flash of movement in the clearing got my attention, as I was about to give it another try, but I lost sight of whatever it was. That was until it collided with the passenger side window, shattering it and raining bits of glass on me. "'What the heck?' I yelled, my panic in full swing. Nothing was there, but I knew it could be back any moment. With shaking fingers, I reached for the keys again and tried the ignition. Nothing. "'Crap!' I yelled, slamming my hand on the steering wheel. My phone rang in my pocket, making me jump back in the seat. I pulled it out, dropped it between the seats, and tried to fish it out. Another impact shook the car, shattering the back window. My fingers snagged on the phone, and I pulled it out in a frenzy. "'Help!' I yelled into it the moment I answered the call. "'Mr. Mark!' Anna asked in the same calm and sweet tone as always. We were expecting you inside. Is everything alright? Crap, I don't... I stuttered. Something's attacking the car. I'm trapped. Listen to me, Mr. Mark. Anna said, her voice a bit more urgent. Keep calm. Get out of the car and run inside. They won't follow you. How do you know? I asked. What if? A loud bang stopped the words in my throat. Something collided with the windshield, sending a spiderweb of cracks rippling through it. I panicked harder, struggling to undo my seatbelt. Trust me, Anna yelled into my ear, and run inside. I didn't need her to tell me a third time. The moment the seatbelt came undone, I shot out of the car. I landed on all fours and took off like that, getting to my feet after a few moments, Hasty footsteps echoed behind me, but I didn't turn around. I hauled it to and through the gate in a terror-fueled sprint that I'm sure broke a world record or two. Once inside the yard, I ran to the building's door. I threw myself against it, but it opened without a hitch, so I crashed to the floor. After rolling to a stop on the thin carpet, I took a moment to catch my breath. Mr. Mark... A voice called from my hands. Are you still there? Did you make it? Turned out, I managed to hold onto my phone even through my frantic dash for safety. The display was covered by an intricate fractal of cracks, the result of me running on all fours and smashing it against the pavement. But it still worked. I lifted it to my ear before I spoke. Yeah, I answered Anna's call. I made it inside. I think I'm safe. Great, Anna said. Please make your way to the third floor. Your office is the third door on the right. Click. She hung up again before I got to ask any questions. The realization that this was no prank, that I was in actual danger, finally sank in. I needed to get out on the double. But I can't get to my car with those things out there, I thought, I decided to put my phone to good use and call for help, but it was nearly impossible to navigate its menu. I couldn't see anything through the cracks. After a few minutes of fumbling around, doing my best to guess where everything was and what I was pressing, I managed to call 911, but the call didn't go through. I probably didn't have reception. Come on, I whined loudly. Being between a rock and a hard place, I decided my best chance of survival was to play along. Maybe Anna would call me again and I could tell her I wanted out. I walked to the elevator, idling by its doors while I waited for it to reach me. Looking around, I noticed how empty this place was. There was a receptionist desk at the entrance, but no one manned it. I could see a nurse cabinet through a tall glass door, but no one was inside. Besides my own breathing, there were no other sounds in the building. It felt like I was completely alone. The ding of the elevator shook me free from my stupor. Its doors parted, and I stepped inside cautiously, pressing the button for the third floor. The ride-up was short, but not short enough, as it offered me enough time to delve into my thoughts again. The institution's name, its layout, the creatures had attacked me after 10pm. None of it added up. I didn't want to admit it, but I knew exactly what was going on. I was just hoping I was wrong. But when the elevator arrived on the third floor, when I opened the third door on the right, when I found a desk sat in front of a wall full of monitors, I realized with terror that I was right. The single, yellow piece of old paper set neatly in the desk center sealed the deal. This was the setting I had imagined. With trembling hands, I picked up the piece of paper, recognizing my own handwriting. You must be the new guy, I read. I dreaded reading further, but I needed to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was what I thought it was. Sorry I couldn't be there to train you myself you could have really used my knowledge to succeed in your new duties. Here's hope this list of rules will suffice and help you see your first night through. If you make it until the morning, I strongly suggest you never come back here. No amount of money is worth it. With my personal advice out of the way, let's get to the rules. Rule number one. Write your name and time of arrival in the logbook at the front desk at the beginning of your shaft. The guard checks the logbook at 10.05 on the dot before making his rounds, until use a deadly force on anyone not signed in. If you forget, you have to avoid the guard for the rest of the night. I wanted to yell out again, in frustration and anger aimed at my own stupidity. I had already broken the first rule, and if the consequences would be what I imagined they would be when I wrote the thing, I broke the most important rule of all. I put the list down and looked at the camera feeds in front of me. Each monitor displayed one of the hospital's many corridors or rooms, but I was searching for one in particular. The reception area came into view, and through the grainy feed, I saw a thick book laying open on the desk. The guard already checked it, but I couldn't see him anywhere. That was bad news, horrible even, You see, I didn't imagine the guard as a normal, elderly man dutifully doing his rounds with a lantern and radio in hand, or even as a human for that matter. No, the best way to address the guard wasn't him, but it. It was a tall, wide figure striding down the corridors at night in search of anything out of place. It was a faceless entity, incapable of feeling emotions like empathy or mercy And it was strong, maybe insanely so. Unwavering in its pursuit of ridding the property of unwanted guests. I envisioned the guard as an unlikely ally. Something that could brave any adversity one might face during their shift. So long as one followed the rules. Otherwise, the guard was your worst enemy. Scanning the other monitors, I noticed a thick metal door shaking wildly in its hinges. The monitors didn't have any sound, but even so, I heard the metal's rattles all the way up on the third floor. I watched with bated breath as the lock broke and the door swung open, revealing the thick darkness inside. Something walked out of that darkness slowly, its eyes lifting to peer into the camera. I felt its gaze land on me through the monitor, freezing me still in my seat. The creature walked away slowly, and I couldn't look away from its mangled form. It was big and bulky, with swollen muscles covered in protruding veins. I don't doubt that any bodybuilder would be envious of its physique, save for the creature's deformities. One of its legs bents backward at the knee, the source of its slowness as it had to drag it along the floor. Its arms were two different lengths, with its right being the longer of the two, it was completely hairless and had a horrified expression permanently frozen on his face. Simply looking at it kept me paralyzed with fear. After it walked outside of the camera's view, I broke free from the spell. I brought up the paper and kept reading, although I already knew what I would find. Rule number two, make your way to the monitoring room right away. You can take whatever route you want but you have to pass by a solitary confinement and say hi to Greg. If you fail to do this, Greg will break out, and we don't want that. In case you forget, you have to call the nurses to sedate him and bring him back to his cell. I had imagined the Sunny Hills Asylum as filled to the brim with patients, but they were all normal people. All save for Greg, who was a bit more special. Born to a possessed mother that was a part of a cult, Greg inherited her strength and wild demeanor, but the cult had not been kind to him as he grew up, putting him through rituals meant to bring out his latent powers. That resulted in a myriad of physical and mental conditions, and when the cultists finally got what they wanted, awakening Greg's potential, he slaughtered all of them. He was found by authorities a few months later roaming the countryside, and they took him in, but he proved to be too strong for them so they transferred him here to live the rest of his days in confinement. I, of course, know all of that because I made it up myself. Greg wasn't a real flesh-and-blood person, or at the very least, he was never supposed to be. But the part that broke my heart, I imagined him as needing that tiny bit of reassurance, that fleeting sense that someone in this world cared about him, to keep him sort of sane and docile, It's why I wrote that rule the way that I did. And breaking that rule also broke my spirit. Poor Greg didn't deserve this. None of it. The only silver lining was that Greg wouldn't come looking for me specifically. He would aimlessly wander the building until he was caught. I was tempted to go out and look for him myself. To right my wrong in the slightest, but I knew that was a bad idea. I searched the drawers for a radio and pulled it out when I found it. Hello, can anyone hear me? I asked, pressing the button and holding it close to my mouth. Greg broke containment. We need a team of nurses on it ASAP. Copied. A feminine voice answered. Stay where you are, our nurse will be dispatched to recontain Greg. Only silence followed after that statement, but I breathed a sigh of relief. With that task taken care of, I resumed reading, both to refresh my memory and to hopefully find some explanation for this madness. Rule number three. Once inside the monitoring room, check the camera feeds once every 30 minutes and report anything out of the ordinary to the guard. Besides the guard and nurses, anything in the corridors at night is considered out of the ordinary. Good, I thought. I'm already doing that. Well, I was doing half of that, to be precise. The monitoring half. I wasn't sure about calling the guard since I didn't log in like I was supposed to. But I decided that I would burn that bridge when I'd get to it. Rule number four. If the guard comes to check up on you, don't look at him. Only answer his first question, no matter what it is, and don't engage in further talking. He'll try to get you to talk more, but we'll leave after ten minutes. I was sure that I could ignore this one for tonight. If the guard would come for me, it wouldn't be to ask questions. As for the questions themselves, I didn't have any specific ones in mind when I wrote this one. I thought of the guard asking random but deeply personal questions meant to disturb and provoke you. What it would do if you didn't answer its first question, or if you answered more than one, I don't know. I didn't imagine that far, and that part had scared me. At least with the other rules, I had a rough idea of what would happen if I broke them. I put the paper down and switched to watching the monitors to see Greg's containment attempt. Checking the clock on the wall, I saw that half an hour had passed, but the night was still young. I found the guard patrolling the corridors randomly, but I didn't know enough about the layouts of the building and the cameras to know where he was. I realized that was bad news. Without that knowledge, I couldn't be sure when the guard was nearing me. Another bridge to burn later. Soon after, I found the nurse that was sent out as well. She was, uh, I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, but it's how I had imagined it. I never expected all of this to become real, okay? She was a petite woman with curves and all the right places, and a skimpy, revealing nurse outfit... That would have been more at home in an adult movie than a hospital. The only thing that stood out was her face, pale as a ghost with dark lips and eyes, as well as random stitches running over her features. I'm very basic when it comes to horror, okay? I know it, I'm not an aficionado, and I won't pretend that I am. In any case, all the nurses look like that, with few differences between them. No names and no numbers. No way to tell them apart from one another. They're a hive mind with a singular purpose contain anyone that's not the guard. But they're pretty dim witted, easy to outsmart, so I don't worry much about them. Anyway, this particular nurse was a big help not just because she had recontained Greg. She walked past the elevator on her way, and I saw the two plastered above the doors. I knew her location, so I could use her to map out the building. I followed her from one monitor to the next, drawing a mental map of wherever she went. And slowly, I figured out where each camera in the building was in relation to each other. That ate away a good portion of the night, about two hours or so. She seemed in no hurry to find Greg. Or maybe I should have given her more details when I called earlier. I also fulfilled my other task, keeping an eye on all of the monitors for anomalies and following Greg and the guard as well. My attention was stretched every which way in my attempt to keep track of everything that could kill me. So I didn't notice when one of the monitors had turned a static. Not until that static started spreading past the screen, engulfing the plastic that encased it. By the time that I saw it, It had already reached the monitors around it. I panicked, picking up the paper to see the rules again. Rule number five. If you see a static anomaly on the monitors, call the IT department and leave the room immediately. Walk through the building for exactly 15 minutes. The anomaly should be fixed. That was bad news. I knew what the static would do. It would spread across the room and engulf everything. If it touched me as well, it wouldn't be good for my health, and it wouldn't stop at the monitoring room. It would spread outside indefinitely until the IT department stopped it. I jumped out of the chair and grabbed the radio, making my way to the door. I stopped with my other hand on the handle, deciding to call from in here. Even with the static slowly spreading behind me, I knew this room was still safer than the corridors, Hello, I asked after fumbling with the radio. I need the IT department, it's an emergency. I cried out into the radio a few more times until someone answered. A sleepy voice broke through the static, sounding very irritated at being disturbed so late into the night. Sup, what's the problem? The voice asked, a young man by the sound of it. The, one of the monitors went full of static, I stammered And now it's spreading across the room Ah, yes The IT guy said Sounding thoroughly bored You know the protocol for this situation Leave the room for 15 minutes Until you take care of it, right? I asked Yep, he answered I'll be right over And I better not find you there I can fix the monitors But I can't fix people Got it, I said I shot the monitors one final look, finding that half of them were gone. I could still see the guard patrolling the ground floor, but I couldn't spot the nurse or Greg anywhere on the remaining monitors. Crap. I left the room quietly, to not give away my position to anyone. The corridor was empty, but I couldn't stay put. The rule wasn't clear on if I had to be on the move for the 15 minutes, so I decided to risk it. I wanted to find a closet somewhere and hide. Now, from what I imagined of the place, there were closets spread through all floors but the third. This floor had the monitoring room, the break room for the nurses, and some other various rooms, but no storage closets. I walked cautiously to the stairs and went down them one step at a time. Eyes and ears peeled for any sign of movement. The building was almost pitch dark at night, I was sure that the cameras had some night-vision enhancements to allow me to see clearly, but out here, I was nearly blind. My eyes adapted after a while, but just barely. I reached the second floor and found lots of doors lining it, but I didn't know which one was the storage closet I so desperately wanted to crawl into. Most of them were rooms for the patients, but those were locked while the closets weren't, so I tried the doors one by one. I was halfway down the corridor with no lock. All of the doors were closed. As I abandoned door 6 and went for door 7, praying that it would be the one, I saw a shadow coming from behind the corner at the corridor's end. A small shadow walking around with a spring in her steps, like she was skipping merrily through a metal and not this hellhole. I couldn't make out her features through the dark, but I knew it was one of the nurses, and I knew that she saw me seeing as my skin crawled and my hair stood up. "'Hey!' she yelled in a cheery, high-pitched voice. "'You're not supposed to be out here. Let me escort you back to your room.' Fight or flight kicked in hard. My heart went from idly beating along to drumming at a mile a minute. I turned and sprinted with all that I had, not caring where I would end up, so long as it was away from her. "'Hey, stop!' She yelled after me. Her footsteps sounded from behind, mixing in with mine as she gave chase. Don't run through the corridors. You'll hurt yourself. Leave me alone. I yelled as I reached these stairs and jumped down three to four at a time. I'm not a patient, but you can be, she said. I looked back and saw that she had reached these stairs as well. She was like a cheetah on steroids, and compared to her, I was a slug on sleeping pills She bound down the stairs with reckless abandon, closing the gap between us with terrifying speeds. I reached the landing and decided, screw it. Either I would break my legs and she would get me, or she would catch up to me regardless. At least this way, I have a chance. I told myself and jumped over the next flight in a single go. I landed with a thud and rolled as the force of the fall pushed me to my knees. Luckily, both of my legs survived, so I took off running. On the next flight of stairs, I did the same, really pushing my luck. I crashed onto the landing, face first against the wall, but I didn't have enough time to assess my wounds. The nurse landed right next to me, so I took off. She tackled me from behind as I was about to jump over the last flight of stairs. Her strength was phenomenal. It was enough to send both of us flying through the air as she had latched onto me. I turned around at the last moment and ended up landing on top of her. She broke my fall, but I got winded. "'Now, now,' she said in a sweet voice as she pushed me off. I rolled away and got on my hunches, heaving and wheezing as I uselessly gasped for air. "'You went and hurt yourself, see. I told you not to run through the corridors.' Between the tears and the fear I looked up at her She got to her feet Perfectly fine despite the fall And pulled a syringe out from somewhere I don't know from where And I don't want to think about it But let's just say that her skimpy outfit Had no pockets to speak of Here She said pointing the needle at me I fell on my back and crawled away On my elbows But I knew there was no escaping her This will calm you down and then we'll find you a nice, quiet room. Fu I tried to say, but with no air in my lungs, my voice failed me. She stepped onto my foot to stop me and leaned over me. Her free hand shot out and grabbed mine with such force that I feared she would break my wrist. She held my arm steady and aimed the syringe at my skin, but try as hard as I might, I couldn't break free. The needle touched my skin and was ready to break through into my veins, but an animalistic scream stopped her. We both looked down the corridor at its source and found Greg barging towards us. Before any of us got to react, he punched the nurse away. She flew into a wall, hitting it hard enough to leave a dent. God, I thought, and Greg was even stronger than I thought. He reached down to grab me and got a hold of my leg. I was effortlessly picked up and he lifted me high enough to make eye contact. Hanging upside down like I did, with my lungs still burning for air, I nearly shat my pants with fear. Hey, hey, big guy. I stammered. Greg paused. His brows creased, but it wasn't enough to wipe the permanently terrified expression on his face. He tilted his head and stared at me, like a wild animal curious about its prey. You, friend, he asked. His voice was deep and hoarse, breaking around the edges, but I felt warmth behind it. Yes, I struggled to push out an answer. I'm a friend, don't hurt me, okay? Greg was puzzled by my answer. He processed it ever so slowly, but made no attempt to put me down. I was afraid that he couldn't understand me, that he would snap and, in response, snap me as well. But his lips curled into a smile. Friend? he yelled with glee. Greg, have friend. He flowed his arms happily, waving me through the air every which way. Yeah, big guy, I answered, feeling the nausea building up. I'm a friend. Put me down slowly, okay? Don't hurt your friend. Greg, have friend. Greg, have friend. He janted and lowered me to the floor a bit too fast. I fell on my head, feeling my neck twist and my shoulders contort, but I wasn't seriously injured. Greg let go of my foot and I got up, wobbly from various aches and riddled with fatigue. What name, friend? Greg asked with excitement. It took me a moment to realize what he meant as he slurred his words pretty badly. Um, Mark... I answered when I finally deciphered it. Mac? Greg yelled back, slurring my name as well. Friend Mac? Close enough, big guy. I said with a dumb smile on my face to match his. I know I should have been way more scared than I was, but I just couldn't be. Despite the way he looked, Greg was a sweet person that life had treated unfairly. Sure, he could stab me like a twig, but at that moment... I was 100% that he wouldn't. Let play. Greg started but was interrupted. The nurse tackled me out of the blue, sending me off my feet. Now, I played football in high school. I have gotten tackled by guys bigger than me plenty of times, but let me tell you, none of those could compare. I seriously doubt that a professional player could tackle me that hard. I landed on my side some 10 feet away and skidded to a stop on the rough floor. With carpet burns added to the list of injuries I had sustained that far, I looked up. The nurse was face-to-face with Greg. No hurt friend, he yelled at her, loud enough to push her hair backward. But she wasn't phased at all. She waited for him to finish and brought up the syringe she wanted to use on me earlier. For her own sake, I thought, that thing better be elephant tranquilizer. Greg tried to punch her again but she ducked below his arm with surprising speed and grace. She reached up and grabbed Greg's wrist, trying to keep him steady. Greg swung his arm upwards and swatted her against the ceiling. She lost her grip on him and fell to the floor, bringing plaster and concrete raining down alongside her. How strong are these freaks, I wondered, and how resilient. If Greg had done that to anyone else, like me for example... I'm pretty sure it would have been an insta-kill. But the nurse got up like nothing had happened and jumped him. The two fought through the corridor, struggling against each other. But there was no clear winner. They seemed evenly matched. Realizing that they were so busy with their scrap that they forgot about me, I decided it was time for me to make my exit. I got on all fours, but their mad brawl had reached me. I took off frantically. Avoiding blind kicks and punches and smashes that were strong enough to turn my bones to paste. The nurse flew into the wall next to me as I had reached a corner and looked at me as she crashed to the floor. I felt my skin tighten a size or two when she had reached for me, but Greg's arm came at her from behind me and grabbed her again. Looking back at them wrestling like two mythical bees, I took the corner and ran away blindly. I don't think I got ten steps away before I collided with something and got sent on my butt. I slowly turned my head to look ahead, and my horrified gaze landed on the slender figure of the guard. What's up with this commotion? He asked, despite lacking a mouth. His voice emanated from the space around him. A low and ominous baritone that rattled my guts. Who are you? What's your name? I didn't answer. I got up and ran back towards Greg and the nurse. Halt. The guard yelled after me and gave chase. At least he wasn't as fast as the nurse, but he was still on my heels. Greg's and the nurse's fighting moved, reaching the reception area, and we found him smashing her against the thick reception desk. With each slam, the wood splintered and groaned until it gave way. Identify yourself. The guard repeated from behind me. I decided to forget it, all of it. I ran towards the exit, toward the outside world filled with less madness than this place. I'd start my car, drive away, and never look back. But the guard grabbed the collar of my shirt and stopped me, only steps away from the door. He pulled me back with a swift motion that cut my breath short, muttering Hooligan under his breath. Back, Greg yelled. As the guard spun me, ready to throw me down on my belly, I caught a glimpse of Greg. He had syringes sticking out of him at various points in his body, all with their plungers down. His moves were slower, stuttery, and his eyes were half-closed. He ran towards me and the guard, his steps wobbly, and punched it away. Like the nurse had done plenty times tonight, the guard flew face-first into a wall. "'Go!' Greg yelled and grabbed one of my legs. Friend, be safe. And with that, he threw me out a window. I crashed through it, landing outside on a carpet of grass and shards of glass. Greg's stunt was helpful as far as getting me out of immediate danger, but it hadn't been too kind to my body. Between being thrown like a ragdoll flying out of a window and crashing to the ground from about seven feet, I was pretty banged up. My hands and face were uncovered, so they got peppered with shallow cuts. My leg ached from the force of being yanked so badly that I was sure I would develop a limb, and the rest of my body just hurt, like all over the place. I was pretty sure I had pulled a muscle, or ten. This will come back to bite me tomorrow, I thought. That's if I see tomorrow. I laid on the ground for a bit, allowing my body a brief reprieve before I would force it to move and do things again. My breathing leveled and my pulse slowed, but I didn't want to get up until I would absolutely have to. After a few moments, I heard a loud thud from inside the building, and I realized that it had been Greg. The anesthetics finally did him in. The sound of his body being dragged along the floor followed soon. I wanted to get up. I wanted to so badly. I wanted to barge in there and help him, but I knew it wouldn't end well. Saddened for my new friend that had saved my life twice, I got up slowly. Just like I had suspected. My leg had trouble supporting my weight. Back inside the building, I decided I would try to get to my car and start it up. That decision was fueled by fear and it was stupid. I knew as much, but it wasn't an all-around bad plan. The car either ran out of battery, or it needed a few puffs of starter fluid. Luckily, I had both of those in the trunk, so I could start it up. But then, I remembered the creatures that had chased me in here, and got me into this mess. I could start up the car, but for that, I needed time, and I was pretty sure they wouldn't let me have it. I could hear them skittering outside. There were a lot of them now. Back inside it is, I thought. I reached into my pocket, remembering that I had stashed the list there before I left. I got it out, unfolded it, and struggled to read it under the moon's washed-out light. Rule number six. If you ever encounter the night shift nurses, run. Hide as soon as you break line of sight and wait for them to wander off before coming out keep on the lookout for them while in the monitoring room, and if you see them approach the door, hide beneath the desk. Well, that one was useless now. Rule number seven, don't interact with the patients, don't question or answer them, and above all else, don't make deals with them. Ah, yes, one of these stranger rules. I left it vague, sort of on purpose, but mostly because I couldn't think up any deals. Now it had the potential to screw me over big time. Rule number eight. If you hear screams, ignore them. If these screams get closer, ignore them harder. You can use headphones to block them out. These screams won't enter your room unless you let them in. So don't. I don't need to worry about this one until I make it back, I thought. The screams had only happened if I was inside the monitoring room. Just like the guard's voice, they were disembodied, coming out of empty space. They would start somewhere in the hospital and make their way towards you, stopping outside the door and idling there for 10-15 to minutes. If you can ignore them, the worst they'll do is give you a good scare. But as they grow louder and louder, some might try to flee or find out what causes them. If you open that door and let them in, they'll do a lot more than just scare you. They'll swarm you like, well, a swarm of bees. Only there will be screams instead of buzzing, and no actual bees. They'll follow you around from that point on, their volume increasing exponentially. At that point, you'd be better off finding the closest window and jumping out. I don't know enough about the human anatomy and how sound affects it, but my best guess is that your eardrums will go first. After that, maybe your eyes sense they're pretty soft. At any rate, the screams will eventually get loud enough to liquefy your bones, but it'll take a while, and every moment of it will be complete and utter agony. Rule number 9 Don't leave the building until your shift is over. Rule number 10 If you leave the building before your shift is over, under any circumstances, don't leave the yard. Get back inside as fast as possible. All of the doors and windows will be locked. So, call the guard to let you back inside. I let out a long, groaning. Come on. It wasn't like I would leave the yard. I wasn't particularly thrilled to find out if I could outrun the forest creatures. But I couldn't exactly call the guard either. And I couldn't break in through the windows without coming to get me. The only other alternative was to sneak in through the basement If outside the asylum was bad and inside was worse, then the basement was a whole other can of heck no. I was torn on what I should do, until a boulder the size of a watermelon fell from the sky right next to me. What the crap? I yelled, hurrying along. More boulders came, all big enough to crush me. The forest creatures got impatient and seemingly decided to get me one way or another. They were afraid to enter the yard because of the guard. I was sure of it. But they didn't have any gripes with hurling stones. Realizing they had aimed by sound since they couldn't see me over the fence, I tried to be as quiet as possible as I moved away. A couple more boulders fell where I had been only moments ago, but the rest started flying randomly. I made it to the east side of the building without getting hit and found the trapdoor that led to the basement. It was locked, the deadbolt chained and bound with a bulky lock. Crap, I grumbled, quietly enough not to be heard. Writing and imagining the rules, I forgot to include a keychain with useful keys somewhere in there. I was out of luck, so I believed until another boulder landed nearby with a heavy thud. I shuffled in front of the hatch, drew in a deep breath, and got ready to put my plan into action. "'Your aim sucks!' I yelled into the night. "'The words barely left my throat, and I saw a boulder flying over the fence. "'I got out of dodge just in time, "'and it fell on the heavy trapdoor with a metallic squeal. "'But the chain and the lock survived. "'They were too thick. "'That's all?' I yelled, getting back in front of the door. "'I caught that pebble with a single hand. "'Another pebble came flying.' Crashing down on the door And then another one And then there was a pause I heard something heavy being dragged Towards the fence from the forest And saw the boulder's top Rise in the air before it was launched With great effort This one was much bigger About the size of a generous beach ball The ones that reach All the way to your waist I jumped out of the way Landing on my stomach And heard it crash through the trap door Back up on my feet, I saw the stairway leading to the basement, with the boulder at its base. "'Nay, thanks, suckers!' I yelled and quickly went inside. A few more boulders came flying, but they all landed in front of the door where I had been. I descended the stairs slowly, entering the murky darkness as still air invaded my nostrils. This place stank of decay, rot, and mold. Light bulbs hung above from the ceiling— but their light was choked by age and a thick layer of dust that settled on their glass. I could barely see a few feet ahead, but my leg wouldn't have let me hurry anyway. And so I limped ahead, a hand on the wall to my left, looking for the exit. The thing about the basement is that it's huge, crisscrossed by narrow corridors and mystery rooms that rearrange themselves every night. Finding your way around them will always be hard, no matter how many times you do it. But I figure no sane person would want to be there twice. But the worst part... I never imagined anything specific for those mystery rooms. Dang things could contain anything. Halfway down the corridor, I came across the first room. It emerged from the murky darkness as I approached it. And I was of half a mind to just pass by it. But knowing this place, any one of the rooms could hold the exit. So I needed to take a risk... My fingers curled around the cold metal of the handle, and I opened the door ever so slowly. Its rusty hinges cried into the corridor as it cracked open, and I risked a peek inside. The room was big and much warmer than the air outside, almost inviting, actually, seeing as the chill of the night followed me in. I took a hesitant step inside, ready to bolt at the slightest sign of trouble. The walls to my left and right were crisscrossed by a tangled mess of copper pipes, and ahead of me laid a looming beast with fiery insides, an ancient-looking boiler patiently burning through its fuel as it heated the hospital, offering warmth and traces of flickering light to the room in the process. I reached my hands out and approached it, having somehow missed the fact that my fingers were freezing. As I got close enough to warm the up, I finally took notice of the ragged old man dozing off in the chair next to the boiler. My breath hitched, and my throat made a whimper. The man's eyes opened and he rubbed sleep in them for a moment before they settled on me. Ah, finally, he said with a groggy voice. They finally sent some fresh fuel down here. What? He didn't answer me. "'Just got up from the chair, opened the boiler's door, "'and rustled the embers inside with a fire poker. "'The burnt-out things took a breath of fresh air, "'igniting weakly, "'and I realized that my fingers hadn't warmed up in the slightest. "'My whole body went a few degrees cooler, "'actually, in the low temperatures impaired my judgment. "'Come on now,' the man urged, "'jabbing a thumb at the boiler. "'Mop in.' You'll warm up very nicely in there and the cold will be gone. The voice was so sincere and comforting that I had trouble doubting him. He didn't sound like one of the abominations birthed by this insane place. Sounded like a worried dad talking to his young son. In an instant, my mind went wobbly and reason escaped out of my head through my ears. Hearing and sight went blurry and I felt colder than I ever had in my life. I needed heat, and I needed to warm up so badly. I took a step towards the boiler, and then another one, and another one, under the old man's soft gaze. With a reassuring smile and gentle hands, he took a hold of my shoulders and helped guide me on the final stretch. In that moment, I truly felt that this was the right thing to do. That snuggling on top of burning cold and being set ablaze would have been a good thing. And I'm 100% sure that a weaker willed person would be burning up in that boiler by now. But I had seen some stuff that night and it changed me. Even lulled as I was by the cold and the old man's words, a small part of me fought back. When I got close enough to the boiler to see inside of it, when I saw that those weren't embers, but blackened bones cracked by heat, I snapped out of it. We were almost there. The old man said, pushing my head down so I would go in. Without warning, I turned and elbowed him in the face. He was caught off guard and stumbled back, tripping and falling to the floor. I took off, hurt leg be damned, giving it all to reach the door. It closed behind me when I wasn't looking, and I realized that it wanted to trap me in, but I was having none of it. I jumped through the air shoulder first, determined to break the door and run for my life. The only problem was that the door opened towards the room, not towards the corridor. I bounced off of it and landed on my butt, with pain erupting from my shoulder. Get in the boiler, fuel! The old man yelled, and I remembered that he existed. Looking back at him, I saw he was back on his feet. Fire poker in hand, he charged at me with a vigor that his old bones shouldn't have been able to muster. I got up and opened the door. Nearly dodging his attempt at turning me into a human shish kebab, his frail appearance proved to be a lie. That much became clear when he hit the sturdy metal door instead of me, and the fire poker still penetrated it. I didn't waste any time. I ran further down the corridor in hopes of finding the exit before getting turned into human kindling. I heard the old man yell from behind me, giving pursuit after he had freed the fire poker. A junction came up ahead, and I decided to coin flip it. Well, mentally at that rate, seeing as I didn't have time to flip an actual coin, I decided to go left. The moment I turned and saw a dead end some ten feet away, I decided that maybe I should turn right instead. Jerking around and breaking into a sprint, I barely avoided another attempt by the old man at impaling me. As I dodged below the fire poker feeling its tip brush against my hair and hearing it hit the concrete wall instead. I wondered if the old man was related to Vlad Tepes or something. I would have explained his obsession with impaling, if nothing else. Anyway, ancestry of my pursuer aside, I kept running. He had a bit more trouble freeing the fire poker from the wall, so he fell behind. I rounded another corner, breaking his line of sight, and was met with another door. Without thinking, I went to open it and hid inside before he would catch up. I hastily closed it behind me and slid down to the floor propped against it. This night was turning out to be much more than I could handle. I just wanted to crash to the floor and never get up again. As my mind settled and my breathing smoothed out, I realized that the cold was gone from my bones and the warmth caused by exhaustion spread through my body. It felt so good not to be freezing anymore that I can't even describe it. Hello? I heard someone call from up ahead. I sighed deeply. The asylum just wouldn't let up, would it? I didn't want to see who or what had called out. I jumped to my feet and dashed back out into the corridor. (laughs) There you are, fuel. The old man yelled and lunged at me. It was about at that time that I noticed his aim really sucked like really bad. He missed me again and impaled one of the nurses that followed me outside. More fuel, he yelled, dropping her dying body to the ground. I ran away, looking over my shoulder for a split second. The old man led the charge, followed closely behind by a handful of nurses with syringes. I hoped that they would sedate him as well. At least then, I would have one less pursuer to worry about but of course they didn't. Sir, don't run through the corridors. We can find you a nice room, sir. Fuel, fuel. Their screams echoed from behind, pushing me forward despite my mounting fatigue and wounds. We ran at random through the twisting basement, and I opened every door in my wake, hoping that one of them would reveal the exit to me. In one room, I found a crematorium the cursory glance I could spare revealed a stretchers covered with sheets, hiding bloated, rotting bodies beneath. A cremation chamber sat against the opposite wall, but it looked like it hadn't been used in a while. I didn't get to gather more details. The bodies on these stretchers jolted up, shambling towards the door with great speed. A nurse yelled from behind and tried to tackle me. I dodged, and her needle missed its mark. She flew over me, straight into the arms of one of the corpses, and I quickly shut the door. Screams soon followed, of agony from the nurse and of twisted pleasure from the corpses. But I didn't stay to listen. I kept running. Another door, another mystery. Even from halfway across the corridor, I saw the twirling tendrils of pure darkness lapping at the air outside from beneath the door. My hand snagged on the handle as I passed it by. And I swung it open behind me. A glance over my shoulder revealed more tendrils shooting out, grabbing a hold of two of the nurses and reeling them in into the room at neck breaking speeds. The door shut itself closed. That only left two nurses and the old man, but that was still three too many. I could only run for a couple more minutes at most. I needed to either shake them or get rid of them before I would collapse. Another T-junction came up and I veered to the left, breaking the line of sight. A few steps later, there was an X-junction as well. Perfect. I took a hard right, finding a door that I entered silently. Nothing yelled at me, nothing attacked me, so I figured I was safe enough. I kept my ear pressed against the door for a bit, but I didn't hear my pursuers pass. They lost me. Thank God. Thank God. I slid to the floor, sprawling on my back as I took greedy breaths. My feet burned and my hurt leg screamed agony at me. As my mind settled on my head, I took in my surroundings. The room was better lit than the rest of the basement, but it was still eerily dark. Cabinets with bottles of various sizes and cardboard boxes lined the walls, and it didn't take me very long to figure out that it was medicine in the center of the room was a rusty operating table, with broken lights hanging above it and a cart of medical instruments next to it. Muff. My eyes trailed up ever so slowly, horrified by what I had seen. The first thing that came into view was a hand, secured to the table with a thick leather strap. A set of terrified eyes that glinted in the dark followed, their gaze had pinned on me. I got on all fours and made my way to the table, using it to prop myself up. The woman bound to it kept trying to cry out, but her mouth was gagged. All of her limbs were bound to the table, and she was dressed in the same skimpy uniform that all the other nurses wore. I won't hurt you. I tried to calm her down. I'm not one of those freaks. I'm trapped in here too. Her struggle ceased, but she didn't take her eyes off of me. I reached behind her head, undoing the gag. Keep quiet, they're looking for me outside, I whispered. She nodded her head, and so I pulled the gag away. Her chest inflated as she drew in a deep breath, but she didn't as much as squeak. Thank you, she whispered. Please free me, the nurses might be back at any moment now. I got to work on the straps around her wrist, but they were too tough. When I realized that I couldn't undo them, I took to checking the cart for anything that I could use. The tools were all rusty and caked in dried blood, but one of these scalpels looked sharp enough. What happened? I asked, as I carefully sawed through the strap. How'd you get here? I saw an ad in the paper, she said, looking for night shift nurses. I came to check it out, and a tall faceless thing jumped me Next thing I know, the nurses sedated me, and I woke up here. She kept talking, but focused, as I was on cutting through the restraints. I missed most of it, but I let her keep at it. I figured it helped her stay calm. The few bits and pieces I did catch her stuff like her name, Charlotte, and the fact that she quit her job at the hospital because of the pandemic, afraid she would catch the bug too. But she still wanted to help people, so... She had resolved to find work as a nurse for the elderly or the disabled. Charlotte was a good person and she didn't deserve any of this, just like Greg hadn't. That fueled my resolve to see through this, but I couldn't put more force behind it and risk slitting her wrist. Still, slowly and steadily, the cut advanced until the strap fell away. Here, I said, grabbing another scalpel and putting it in Charlotte's free hand... You get to work on your other hands, and I'll get started on your legs. We don't know how much time we have left. Okay, Charlotte whispered with worry. She grabbed the scalpel tight and did as I instructed. I moved on the bed and started cutting the strap around her left leg. We would hopefully be done at the same time and join our forces for the last strap. Time had a tendency to go wobbly when you're stressed out of your mind. A second can stretch into what feel like hours, and hours can melt together into what feels like mere seconds. In what felt like a heartbeat, I was done with the strap around Charlotte's left leg. But looking up at her, she still had a ways to go on hers. I wanted to move on to her other leg, and then go back up and help her finish. That was my plan. But when the door started creaking as it opened, and when I dropped my scalpel and instinctively hit under the table... My plan fell apart. I heard Charlotte get startled. I heard her trying to hurry up so much that she ended up cutting her own skin. I heard her cries, her pleas for help as the nurse entered the room. Her whimpers as she asked for a mercy that she would never receive. The nurse walked over to the table. Never said a single word. Nothing. All I heard were Charlotte's pleas breaking apart as she sobbed. I was too terrified, paralyzed by my own cowardice as the nurse's feet stopped inches in front of my face. There was a struggle above me, but it was short-lived. The nurse overpowered Charlotte, and I heard the sickening sound of flesh tearing before her. She began gargling. Her hands had grabbed the table, fingers and knuckles turning white from the effort. As she pulled herself over the edge in a final, desperate attempt to flee, My tears started flowing, and I barely held back my cries. Charlotte dangled from the two remaining straps her face right in front of me, her eyes peering deep into mine. In them, I saw a fear unlike any other, unlike any I thought possible. The fear of someone certain of their own fate and unable to change it. I'm so sorry, I mouthed, afraid to even whisper. Spirits of blood escaped her cut throat, and the scalpel embedded in her flesh fell to the floor with a clatter. Life left her eyes as her pupils dilated, but they remained wide open, her last moments of fear frozen on her face. The nurse walked around the table and hoisted Charlotte's corpse back up, laying around the dirty sheets haphazardly. I am terribly sorry, the nurse said. "'turning her back to us and walking to one of the cabinets. "'But you wouldn't cooperate on your induction. "'Still, I think you'll love it here. "'You'll be working with Mr. Gregg. "'He can be a handful at times, but he's mostly harmless.' "'I saw her open the cabinet and rifle through the contents. "'She pulled an empty syringe out of thin air "'and began filling it up with drops from various vials. "'A mellow tune left her lips as she began humming.' and I figured this was my chance to get out of there. I was sorry for Charlotte, but there was no point risking my life for her corpse, as cowardly as that might sound. Luckily, the nurse left the door wide open when she entered. I scurried towards it on all fours, making as little sound as possible, and got out of the corridor unnoticed. Looking back one final time, I saw the nurse walking back towards the table and injecting Charlotte's dead body with the concoction that she had brewed. Charlotte convulsed, heaving for air as her back arched up from the sheets, but settled after a long moment. After she had calmed down, she snapped the remaining restraints like they were nothing and looked beneath the table. I was hopeful for all of a second, thinking I would get another unlikely ally. But when Charlotte opened her mouth and talked, that hope was taken away from me. Is something the matter? The nurse asked her. Yes, she answered matter-of-factly. Her voice is cold as the darkest polar night. We have a potential patient running around. I ran away before Charlotte and the other nurse got a chance to see and pursue me. But soon enough, I slowed down. Partly because I wanted to make less noise and avoid attracting unwanted attention. But partly because I wanted to save what little strength I had left in case I actually needed to run. I explored the basement for maybe 15 minutes before it dawned on me. This place was much bigger than it ought to be given the building size. Hell, even including the yard and the entire clearing, this basement was still too big. So, either the basement's inside was bigger than its outside, or I had a forest above me right now. Plus, there were barely any doors, most of it was dark, empty corridors. I finally found another door and opened it cautiously. The last thing I needed was to run into another nurse's den. Taking a peek inside, I saw the room was chock full of mannequins. Freaking mannequins. And a supernatural asylum's basement. Why? There was no exit though, so I left the mannequin room behind. Barely a few turns later, I heard footsteps from up ahead. Hasty, but not really hurried, so I figured they hadn't found me yet. I turned around, walking carefully, hoping they would take a different turn from mine and lose me. Yet, as I neared the mannequin room again, I knew that wouldn't be the case. More footsteps came from the opposite direction, pinning me in the middle. Distraught, but not eager to be found, I snuck back into the mannequin room. I retreated among them, reaching one of the corners opposite of the door and laid down. The footsteps came, paused next to the door and a nurse opened it. At that moment, I was grateful for the fact that I wasn't there, ear pressed to the metal like I wanted to do at first. Is the patient in there? Another nurse asked the first, I don't think so, I don't see him. The first nurse answered, okay. The second nurse said, "'I'll go on ahead and keep searching. "'You keep on the lookout in case he passes by.' "'Okay,' the first nurse said. She closed the door, muttering creepy things under her breath. I took a deep inhale to ease my nerves, careful not to make too much sound when I exhaled. This predicament was bad to say the least. I had no way out of the room now. "'Maybe I can just stay here for the night.' I thought, weighing my options, they're night shift nurses after all. Maybe they go to sleep in the morning. I was half satisfied with my plan, but in retrospect, I know I was ready for the most ludicrous of mental gymnastics so long as I could rest. I laid down on my left side, with my back against the wall and facing the door. Although I could only see a narrow slice of its bottom between these sea of mannequin legs that laid between me and it. A few minutes passed like that, with breathing being my sole physical activity. I saw the nurse's feet through the gap beneath the door. She walked back and forth outside like the world's most dutiful guard. My eyelids grew heavy and I found a shallow episodes of microsleep, but I didn't allow myself to go fully under. I couldn't afford to be unconscious in a place like this. Still, sleep is a mighty beast. With help from the mind-numbing fatigue in my bones, sleep did me in eventually. I didn't dream. In fact, I didn't sleep all that long. It was short and fitful, slain by a voice calling out from around my head. It jolted me awake, sending my mind reeling with panic and making my heart beat a mile a minute. "'Mr. Mark,' the voice asked. "'Come in, Mr. Mark. Are you okay?' It took me a second to realize that it was Anna, and it took me another second to realize she was speaking out of the walkie-talkie clipped to my belt. I retrieved it, still shaking wildly from the unexpected awakening, and I pressed the talk button. ''Keep quiet,'' I whisper yelled into it. ''Mr. Mark,'' Anna said, completely disregarding my request. ''You are still alive. That's a pleasant surprise,'' "'But you appear to be in the basement at the moment.' "'Yeah,' I said, hoping the spite attached to my words wouldn't get lost in the low volume of my voice. "'I'm in the freaking basement, being chased by abominations.' "'Language, Mr. Mark,' Anna said. "'Her sweet, pleasant voice turned deep and reverberating, sending a rattle through my bones. "'Anyway, how do you like the mannequin room?' I know you just love mannequins, don't you, so I couldn't not include it. She continued in her normal customer service voice. We need to talk about that, I said, and about this whole mess while we're at it. We do, she agreed. Meet me in my office onto the ground floor. It's right by the reception. She hung up, not before giving me directions to the elevator. Great, I thought, Of course, the only exit from here is the elevator. I pulled out the list and read the next rule to refresh my memory on what it had to say about the elevator. Rule number 11. Take the stairs if you can help it. If you absolutely 100% have to take the elevator, wait for a bit before getting out. If the floor seems off, chances are it is. Use the elevator to bring you back to the floor you left from, not any other floor. Also, if new buttons appear in the elevator, refrain from pressing them. They'll be gone the next time. Just great, I thought. I got up and threaded the jungle of mannequins slowly, shuddering a bit each time I had to touch one. I was surprised that the nurse outside hadn't heard the conversation, but I decided not to look that gift horse in the mouth. Halfway to the door, in the middle of the dozens of mannequins the lights in the room started dimming. Please no, I prayed, terrified of the prospect of having to navigate between them and complete darkness. Dropping to my hunches to get a better view of the door, I saw the tendrils of darkness tentatively probing the room. They advanced slowly in unison, stopping to feel their surroundings every so often. Under my paralyzed stare, one of them reached the foot of a mannequin It did a double take, pulled back, and shot at the mannequin's chest. The plastic body started writhing, growing veins of pure black across its surface. When the tendril was done infecting the mannequin, it pulled back and let it stand on its own. The next part happened too quickly. I got on my feet and bolted, pushing mannequins out of the way as I advanced towards the door. The tendrils joined in an infecting frenzy, hitting and animating all of the plastic monstrosities around me. By the time I reached the door, all of the mannequins followed me, and the tendrils set their sights on me as well. All caution thrown aside, I opened the door, only to run into the nurse. Before she got to react, I grabbed her shoulders and threw her into the arms of the mannequins. Go left, go right, go left again, I thought. I followed the directions that Anna had given me, with a tidal wave of crazed vessels of darkness on my heels. They pushed and climbed and rushed past each other. All caution discarded in their attempt to catch and convert me as well. I ran across more nurses on my way, but I pushed all of them to the ground and kept going. Before long, on the verge of collapsing and hyperventilating my lungs out, I saw the doors of the elevator at the end of the corridor. They were wide open, the lights inside of it bright and inviting, I rushed in and pressed the button for the ground floor repeatedly, praying for the thing to close faster. It did so in the nick of time, and I heard the mass of mannequins slamming against the doors as I began ascending. The ride was too short for me to catch my breath or mentally prepare myself. The doors parted with a cheery ding, and I saw the guard's face on the other side. There you are, you hooligan. It yelled and dove at me like an Olympic swimmer. I ducked below him, pressing the button for the basement on my way out. The guard crashed into the back of the elevator, and the doors closed in front of it before it got out. No, 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 it yelled, with fear rather than frustration, which helped put the basement into perspective for me. The elevator departed, taking the guard off to meet the fate that had been reserved for me. I turned and headed for the reception desk, finding Anna's door right away. Now that I knew to look for it, it stood out like a sore thumb. Large, beautifully ornate dark wood, with a shiny gold plaque in its center that read, Anna Lilith. Could that be any more telling? I wondered as I approached the door and knocked on it gently. Come on in, Mr. Mark, Anna called out. I did what she said, entering her office as cautiously as I did the basement rooms. The inside was impressive, a gorgeous far cry from the rest of the asylum. Neat bookshelves occupied the walls. There was a spotless hardwood floor, and her desk sat at the opposite end of her room. A large window took up the wall behind her, allowing the moon's light to shine in and cast soft shadows on her features. Take a seat, Mr. Mark. She said, gesturing to the armchair in front of her. I'm not wrong in my assessment that you could really use it, am I? She asked with a devious grin. You're not. I admitted with a frown and made my way to it. Anna looked as normal as any other woman you might meet, though I would wager she turned a few more heads, which is to say that she's good-looking but still average. Hazel eyes, black hair, kept in a tight office bun a pair of classy glasses, and a pencil skirt and blouse duo. Imagine you're a run-of-the-mill businesswoman, and you'll have a good picture of her. So, what do you think of your job so far, Mr. Mark? She asked after I had made myself comfortable in the armchair. My head felt like it had just exploded. Was she for real? It sucks, I yelled, losing what little bits of composure I had left. What is this place? What are you? What? Anna smashed her hand on the desk, cracking me wood and stopping my words in my throat. The skin on her arm turned burning red all the way up to her shoulder and cheek, covered with scales of hot, sharp obsidian. Her teeth went from pearly whites to sharp and jagged, and her angry expression displayed them clearly. Her now shining, yellow eyes pinned me in place. I said watch your language, she yelled in that same deep demonic voice from earlier. I pushed back so hard into the armchair that I nearly toppled over. She took a deep breath, stifling her rage and exhaling a puff of smoke. Her eyes turned back to their soft hazel, and the scales slowly descended back into her skin as it reverted to tan white. When she was back to normal, she sat down and smiled again like nothing had happened. I've shown you respect thus far, Mr. Mark, she said. I don't think it's unfair to ask for you to reciprocate and be respectful as well. No, it's not, I said in a squeaky voice, scared out of my wits. Uh, sorry. My apology accepted, she said cheerily. Now that mutual respect has been reestablished, let's try that again. What do you think of your job so far, Mr. Mark? It's scary, I said, forgetting all of the profanities I wanted to hurl at her. I want out. "Ah," Anna said with a disappointment. Me and my employers have found your work very satisfactory this far, Mr. Mark. We'd hate to see you go. Just look at me, I said, motioning my hands around my bruised body. I'm a wreck, and this was only the first night. I don't think I could survive another... You'll get better. Anna tried to reassure me. I'm sure that if you stick with us, you'll grow to be one of our most valued employees. What makes you so sure, if I might ask? I said. As her words rolled around my head, I did a double take and quickly added. And wait, one of. You may ask, Anna said with a chuckle. I am sure because I've seen you survive your first night against rules you yourself have made. Most others don't. Sorry, but I still want out, I said. I'm not cut out for this. Maybe this will change your mind, Anna said. She waved her hand through the air. Her palm burst into flames and tethered smoke. And when they died down, she had an envelope much like the one I had found on my doorstep. With a glint in her eyes and a certainty in her actions, she handed it to me. I opened it to find... inside I wanted to throw the banknotes On the desk and to tell her politely that No amount of money was worth going through Another night like this But as if knowing what I was about to do She stopped me Her hands reached into a drawer in her desk and she pulled out A manila envelope that she had laid down In front of me That would have been your assignment for tonight She said Gesturing for me to open it but seeing how this night proceeded, I can understand that you never found it in your room, and you were unable to complete it. You'll be forced to send it to another writer if you quit, Mr. Mark. I opened the thing, not knowing better than to not follow her orders. A pile of papers came out, among which were familiar blueprints of an apartment, as well as a essay-length piece about it. I scanned them my blood growing cold in my veins as the realization sunk in. That was my apartment, the one I was currently living in, as well as a slew of information about it and myself. This was a threat, plain and simple. This, this is... I almost whispered, my shock and terror overwhelming me. Or, Anna said, we can scrap that assignment. You can take the money I've offered you, And you can go home early tonight. And I can see you here tomorrow night at 10pm sharp. Take your time to think about it, Mr. Mark. My mind ran every which way, trying to put the puzzle together. Anna was some sort of demoner at the very least. She had access to supernatural powers. She also had access to my mind, to my physical condition and whereabouts, and to anything pertaining to me. And most importantly... She had access to other writers. My life was in her hands, and she had the option to turn it into a living hell. Countless days and nights just like this one, no matter where I would go and what I would do, and to top it all off, I wouldn't have the intimate knowledge about the rules that I had tonight, the intimate knowledge that helped me survive so far. With a heavy heart and after much deliberation with myself, I accepted her offer. I'm ashamed to admit it, to shine a light on my cowardly nature once more. But it's the truth. And I'm sure most folks would accept as well if put in my situation. I'm glad to hear that, Mr. Mark. Anna said. Remember, 10pm sharp, and don't forget to follow the rules. Before I got to answer, a knock on the door interrupted us. Anna looked at me with a smile. You mind getting that for me, Mr. Mark? Sure. I answered and got up. I walked over to the door absentmindedly. My head ravaged from all the realizations and decisions I had to make. Another knock came, so I hurried to open it. On the other side, I found a small old lady in a torn straitjacket. The next rule flashed through my head, but I had no time to react. Rule number twelve. Martha will knock on your door every few nights Only let her in if she has a tray of cookies in her hands She'll offer you one But only take a chocolate chip cookie But Martha had no tray of cookies and I had just broken another rule She lunged at me Faster and more vicious than her frail frame should have allowed And got a hold of my arm In a single fluid motion She sent me hurtling through the air I came crashing down on Anna's desk, with her in tears from laughing all the way. Come on, Mr. Mark, she said through the hollers. What did I just say? How did you not see that coming? Heaving for air, I couldn't answer her. And anyway, I had more pressing matters to focus on, like Martha running spastically towards me. Go back to your room, Anna said. Her eyes turned yellow once again and her words as heavy as lead. Her voice held such strength that I almost got up and followed Martha, but I didn't. Martha stopped her vicious assault, turning docile right away. She left the office, closing the door behind her. I took a moment to regain my senses before getting up from the desk, and was surprised to find out that I didn't have any broken bones after that stunt. 10 p.m. sharp, I said and I left the office. That's the spirit, Mr. Mark. Anna answered, ripping apart the papers and the manila envelope. I left her office and closed the door behind me. As I reached the reception desk, I pulled out the list one final time and read the last one. Rule number 13. Some of these instances can and will overlap. If that happens... Proceed to pray to your deity of choice for luck. You'll need it. Guess I prayed hard enough, I thought, leaving the list on the reception desk. And that was my first night working for Rules Inc. Nothing else happened. I walked back to my car without incident. The corridors of the asylum were empty. The forest creatures had scurried away. And my car started up just fine. I drove home, crashed in my bed, and slept until midday without as much as turning. Now, for some more details that I discovered in the meantime, because yeah, I still work there. Think of me what you want for that. I'll structure this next part sort of like a list because I suck at summarizing. The Sunny Hills Asylum. First off, the asylum itself. Even though I made it up, it's a real location now. I've been able to find mentions of it in the local library, and if you feed the address into Google Maps, it'll take you there. No, you can't have the address, and no, you can't find it on the internet by searching. I assume this is intentional. Anna probably doesn't want unexpected guests. You can find other locations with the same name, be them real or fictional, but none of them are this one. I've tried coming here during the day, but the dirt road loops through the forest and always brings me back where I start. Going in on foot has the same result. I can't find the clearing or the building unless I'm driving to it for work. The Rules I still have to abide by these same rules every night. I get to the asylum, go up to the monitoring room on the third floor, after writing my name in the logbook and passing by Greg to say hi and I find that night's assignment in my drawer. Most nights are much more peaceful than the first, seeing as I follow the rules to the letter now. At most, I'll get chased around by the nurses for a bit, or have to run away from the static now and again. Greg. Despite most things resetting every night, Greg is not one of them. He still remembers me to this day and still calls me his friend. Passing by to say hello is one of the highlights of my night, and I make sure to stick around for a bit of conversation every time. His grasp on language and talking in general has improved, might I add. I guess it was just a matter of talking more often, and exercising that vital part of himself that he's been deprived of in solitary confinement. He still breaks free every now and again, but now it's because he wants to spend more time with me. Unfortunately, I have to call the nurses to contain him. Otherwise, the guard will find him and that's much worse, trust me. I also found out that Greg has a sweet tooth, so I sneak in snacks to give to him. I'm sure that's not allowed, but no one said anything to me yet. The guard. There's not much to say about it. The guard is still the same. I haven't had to go up against him again, but I did try a few things. I tried bringing in a small pistol that I could conceal in my clothes to shoot the guard with and see what would happen. It jammed three nights in a row, but shot just fine outside the asylum. I tried calling the guard on the other anomalies, like the nurses or the static, in case one of the anomalies is covered by the rules. He doesn't answer me. I tried stockpiling cookies from Martha and using their effects to aid me in fighting the guard in hand-to-hand combat, If my name is written in the logbook, he doesn't fight back, just quips at me the whole time with remarks such as, You're getting better, chap. At this rate, you'll be stealing my job. If my name isn't written down, and yes, I've tried that, insane as it might be, he does fight back, and oh boy, does he fight back. We once thrashed the whole reception area before I would run away, but I didn't put as much as a scratch on him. I'm pretty sure he's indestructible. Martha and her cookies. Talking to Martha, I still see her every so often. I've mostly taken chocolate chip cookies from her tray whenever she has it, just like the rules instruct. There's usually one or two on the tray, with the rest being raisins. They're mighty delicious. But out of curiosity, I did take raisin cookies as well. She gave me a sly grin and walked away. I crumpled up the cookies and ate the smallest crumb thinking that they were poisoned. I never imagined anything about her cookies, save for the fact that it's a test. Martha hates raisins and people that like raisins. It turns out that the raisin cookies are injected with stuff from the nurses' room, which means that, yeah, Martha sneaks in and out of the basement to steal from the nurses. She's one hardcore granny, but she can't read the labels, so she ends up putting random stuff in the cookies. Bad effects this far include nausea, bleeding from various orifices for random amounts of time, explosive diarrhea, sprouting random body parts that shrivel up and fall off, losing some or all of my senses, and many more. They're never lethal, but I'm not sure if that's because of the small dose. Some of the benefiting effects this far include increased strength and agility, sharper senses, invisibility, rapid healing, and many more. These are the cookies I stockpiled to fight the guard with. and No, I can't use them to become a superhero or save myself from pinches again. I ate all of them in one go. And seeing me in action, the nurses figured it out. They've since somehow barred Martha from reaching the good stuff. But they still let her get the bad stuff just to mess with me. I figured that one out the hard way. The nurses... They might just be the most interesting thing in this asylum, since I didn't imagine much about them, like where they come from or where they go once they're done. Anna went in and filled those blanks for me. The nurses reside in their den in the basement when they're not needed. They always come up via the elevator. I don't know how many of them there are, but I'm guessing somewhere in the vicinity of 50. Plus or minus a few because they sometimes die. Not all nurses are made equal, it seems. Depending on their assigned patients or their expected duties, they can be slightly above average or insanely strong. Greg always has three active nurses, because he sometimes does manage to kill them. His nurses are by far the strongest and the ones that I call most often. I've since given them nicknames. Darling is the nurse that answered my first Greg call. She's the most chatty out of the three, always down to throw quips she's also the strongest Beatrice is the second Greg nurse and she's the quiet type I don't think I've ever heard her talk actually she's also the hardest to escape with her get stuff done fast and efficient attitude and lastly there's Charlotte the only nurse I've seen being made into one I tried talking to her when she came up once but she doesn't remember her past or even her name She's just another nurse now, and yes, I feel very bad about it every time I think of her. I've since found her disappearance case, though it never garnered much media attention outside of the immediate town where she lived. I try my best to keep any nurse from dying. I don't want another one on my already heavy conscience. The other patients. Aside from Greg and Martha, there are plenty of patients in the building. I never counted them all, but my guess is somewhere in the hundreds given the asylum size. Most of them seem like normal people, but there are a select few bad eggs among them. They'll try to chat me up when I pass the rooms and their words are like anglerfish lures. Once you answer, once you take the bait, you're done for. You won't be able to stop yourself from talking. They'll ask more and more personal questions, And you'll answer truthfully, no matter how hard you'll want not to. Once they know you well enough, they'll offer you a trade. Receive your greatest desire for the low price of switching places with them once you're done. How do I know this? Because despite my knowledge of the rules and my better judgment, I accidentally answered a patient once. My only saving grace was that my deepest desire was to get away from the asylum for good which couldn't happen if I switched places with them. I was saved by a paradox. Field tests. My first night was one, and I've had plenty since. Anna usually gives me a heads up at the end of my shift, along with an address I need to reach by the next night. Once on location, I have to pretend to be a veteran employee on the way out, and teach the unlucky new guy or gal how to survive. There's no rhyme or reason to which sets of rules I'll have to field test, so my best guess is that they're picked at random. But these tests have opened my eyes to the fact that other people will have to live by the rules that I write. I've since been trying to make them as mellow as possible, while still having them pass. Otherwise, other writers might write worse rules and doom more people. It's one of the few things that keep me going. Along with Greg and my fear of Anna who I'm pretty sure is one of Satan's daughters. Anna. My interactions with her have been limited for obvious reasons. I've always been careful around her after that first night, so I haven't had to witness another one of her outbursts. But her small remarks and the way she sometimes words things have convinced me that she's not of this world. But some spawn from the depths of hell sent up here to cause suffering. For example, a few days ago, I approached her to voice one of my concerns about the job. Something that a user here mentioned in the comments of the first post that I made. "'Oh, come in, Mr. Mark,' she said when I knocked on her door. "'You need anything?' "'Yes, Anna,' I said, not going further than the threshold of her office. "'You see, I love my job and the money that it earns me. "'I lied through my teeth. "'But I'm worried about the IRS since I didn't sign an actual contract.' and you're paying me under the table. A look of realization crossed her features. She face-palmed in over-the-top manner while laughing. I knew we forgot something, she said. You'll have to excuse me. The IRS and work contracts aren't a thing where I come from. With another wave of her hand that produced hellish flames and smoke, she summoned a contract just ripe for signing, which I did sign and she gave me a grin full of needle-sharp teeth She scares the crap out of me, okay? There, she said before the ink had a chance to dry. That should set your mind at ease. Don't worry. There are no strange clauses in that contract. And I'll go ahead and retroactively report your income if that's okay with you. Just be sure to file your taxes as soon as possible, she said in the same cheery voice that I had grown used to, with a tad of teasing thrown into the mix. So yeah... That's what I've been doing between working, writing this post, and the past few days. Getting my taxes done. Because I can't afford to go to jail. I have a sneaking suspicion that any potential jail room I'll be thrown into will have a list of rules under the mattress. And it won't be one written by me. Thank you to everyone who tried to help me in the comments, but I'm afraid I'm here for the long run. And if you ever find a list of rules when you get a new job move to a new apartment, or are otherwise in a new, scary location. I'm truly sorry.